Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show where we discuss short video games. You know, you know, short ones. The kinds you can complete in, a, in an evening or a weekend or, in this case, maybe about 15 hours. How long it takes you to play our topic this week, Link Between Worlds. And I am joined this week uh, by Gary Butterfield of the DuckFeed.TV network. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing great. I'm really, really excited that you joined us this week because, first off, your episode on my favorite gaming podcast, uh, Watch Out for Fireballs, on this game's prequel, uh, a, a Link to the Past. I'm going to mix up the names continually through the podcast because I continually call this game A Link to the Past and its prequel, A Link Between Worlds. But anyway, um, your episode on that was great. It was one of my favorites on that show, so I'll have a link in the show notes to that. Um, but you are also the host of many other excellent podcasts on that network, including uh, Abject Suffering and um, uh, Teenage Dirtbags. And I keep forgetting the name of your Dark Souls <laughs> you're show. Not, you're not a Dark Souls guy. It's no, okay. I'm not a Dark Souls guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I will someday try to be one, I promise, Gary. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. No, no problem. Thank you very much for having me. You're, you're, too, you're too kind. Thank you. And I am joined, of course, this week also by my co-host, Nate Heininger. I, I would add some glowing things to say about you, Nate, but your record stands for itself. Oh, thank you. Uh, happy to be here. Is this going to be the second podcast in a row where we have a guest that involves just tearing me down to bring <laughs> up the other guest? Yeah, Nate, I got some real <laughs> problems with you. All yeah, right? Nate, you're let's garbage. get started. You know Actually, Reagan, keep it on now. the music. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's do this. Do this. <laughs> all right. If, like... I, if I remember last time, you don't like Sonic. And oh, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I got a bone to pick. Put put thirty yeah. seconds on the clock and yeah. and give me a cool beat. It's time for time for the Gary rebuttal field. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do this now. So we are talking, as I said a second ago, about a link between worlds. I am super excited to talk about this game. So, um, for those that you know, maybe have been hiding under a rock for a few years. Uh, this is a 2013 action-adventure puzzle game for the Nintendo, Nintendo 3DS. Uh, it is a direct sequel to A Link to the Past. Um, so in Japan, this is actually called Triforce of the Gods 2. Um, so <laughs> That's very such a cooler name, a I know, by right? the way. Triforce of the Gods. But, you know, is... the localizers really hate anything with gods or church or anything like that. So, But they, they love out. puns. Like they, yeah, a link to the past, yeah. a link between worlds. You know? Oh my God, I just got that. What, seriously? <laughs> no, no. Okay, okay, good. I was about to kick you off the show again. This is actually probably only my second Zelda game that I've played, like, the whole way through. I started with Zelda games in entirely the wrong way. You know, like I said many times before, I was a Sega kid. I never had a, a Nintendo. I never had a Super Nintendo. Um, I didn't have a GameCube. So I really started with Nintendo on the Wii, and I was very excited to play Twilight Princess. And I dived into that with eager expectation that I'd be waggling my Wiimote and I never finished it because it just didn't work for me. I mean, it's kind of a lame game. I just didn't like it. Um, so I kind of wrote off Zelda as not for me for years until actually not that long ago. I, you know, I, I have a bunch of uh, Game Boy Advance stuff. I'm, 
I love the Game Boy Advance. There's a great, um, I mean, people will debate if it's great, but it's a really competent port of uh, Link, uh, Link to the Past on the Game Boy Advance. And I played that and I absolutely loved it and was very excited to check this game out. Uh, Gary, have you, you've obviously played a lot more of the Zelda series than I have. Yeah, I started off um, digging Zelda a lot as a kid. Um, the, the first couple ones for the NES I really enjoyed. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm a real champion of the second one whenever I get a chance because uh, it's kind of an unfairly maligned game, I think. Not that I'm recommending it necessarily to anyone with modern <laughs> sensibilities, but the, the third one is a real revelation. I really love Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. I think that's really good. Um, and the 3D ones, you know, initially I started off playing them and, and kind of enjoying them, but they haven't held up. For me in mm. general. And it, it's usually, it's not like I think they are necessarily bad games. Um, I think Majora's Mask is really interesting. Um, but there's one thing on there that's just like an unforgivable sin. Like there's like, you know, Ocarina of Time, which I like, but there's, you know, the, there's not a lot of stuff in the overworld. And Navi, I think, is one of those things that is, uh, people make hey. fun of a lot, but is hey. actually as bad as people say. Like it's hey. not like, it's like, oh, oh, it's such a cliche hey. to make fun of Navi. It's like, well, no. It's actually the worst thing. Like it is, it's, there's no exaggeration there. It is, it is the dumbest, worst design decision that they could have made. Like it's so annoying. Um, and then later, like you know, God help you, Twilight Princess. Like that, that's a bad game. Yeah, I don't know. And then you know, Skyward Sword, and and like these later ones, I just think are kind of rough. And uh, and and this game, I was really happy about. I, I came back to it reluctantly just because everything people told me about it that it actually messes with the formula, that it, you know, in a very un-Nintendo way, doesn't hold your hand. Um, those are all things that that got me back into it. And now I'm hopeful about the series for the first time uh, in years. Um, I'm really curious as to what they'll, what they'll do with it going forward. Yeah, I'm thrilled that there are zero talking tutorial fairies in this. <laughs> very exciting. Yeah. There's a lot of dialogue, but not many tutorial fairies, for sure. A strange bee. There's, there's yeah. a strange <laughs> bee, but not. it doesn't really tell you what to do. I, I hate bugs telling me what to do is the thing. And that's, that's, that's the problem with Navi. It's just like, you're, you're an insect and I'm a human. Like you, you leave me alone. No, <laughs> like, no, you know your place. Yeah. This hierarchy is off. Excuse me. Excuse me. Let's get the lore correct here. He's not a human. He's, he's, yeah, he's a Hillian. Yeah. He's an elf boy. Or <laughs> and we're going to be and, talking about all of the lore on this yeah, show. You know, right? it's, it's the audio book version of Hyrule Historia. Oh God. Yeah. Um, well, I couldn't, I couldn't give less of a shit about the lore. And I don't think I'm really alone there, but, um, this game has a lot of dialogue up front. I was kind of skeptical about that, but it really does at some point turn that spigot off and let you loose. So very, mm -hmm. very much improved over Twilight Princess. Mm -hmm. Nate, you haven't played a lot of Zelda, though, have you? No, not really. Um, counter to uh, what Gary's saying, I played uh, Ocarina of Time. That was my first real Zelda game that I played all the way through. Now, I haven't played it in like 10 years, so... I'm sure that if I went back, it would be a different experience. But at the time, one of my favorite games. Uh, I probably completed it like six times on my Nintendo 64. It's pretty much like that and any of the rare games, GoldenEye, Perfect Dark, all that stuff. I played those just nonstop. And, uh, and Nate, Nate is very annoying, so uh, yeah. Navi didn't bother him. <laughs> it, it was actually it was like, oh, finally. Yeah. Finally, uh, I get to see myself reflected in my media. Yeah, when uh, whenever me and my friends would get together and, and pretend that we were Zelda characters, I was just Navi. <laughs> you pretend <laughs> to be Navi? Just running circles around my friends. Boy. Like, hey! <laughs> hey, guys! I'm here! Hey! How's it hey, going? look at that! <laughs> look it! Or, Try to hit that with a slingshot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> open the door. It's a puzzle, get it? <laughs> right, I'm going to point yeah. at a thing, and then you're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. That's the puzzle. Yep. Um, hey, so. good job. You figured it out. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I, over the years, have touched on a couple other ones. Um, I did try Twilight Princess because I too got a Wii pretty early into the into the uh, release and was excited to stand and hold him and have my shield and my sword. But the, the I think the great irony about the the Wii is that it actually allowed you to be less active because <laughs> you could have your like hands even further away from each other. Yeah, it's kind of beer and remote position with the Wii mode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and by the end of it, I'd be slouched back on the couch with one hand kind of by my, like my right hand kind of by my right hip and my left hand kind of by my left hip, just slouched into the couch doing as little motion as required to actually play the game. Just and when, you, and when you had to shoot that arrow and aim, like anytime I have to point my remote to aim on the screen and do anything, even on like the Wii U when I like have to just select something, it's always clunky and it yeah. never, it never feels good. And especially in a game where you're like shooting arrows and you're like, like it just it yeah for work. an action game and yeah. the very you know on a launch title on the Wii God what a nightmare anyway like so I don't have a lot of experience that this the Nintendo was I I didn't I just for whatever reason never played any of the Zeldas I didn't have a Super Nintendo uh, and until this one I had not played a Zelda game all the way through I played a little bit of a link to the past to kind of get an idea for the podcast about the connection between the two and I think that's really really awesome what they did with it. But this is the first one I played all the way through since Ogarina of Time, and it was a great time. I, I really, really, really enjoyed this game. Well, one of the things that's interesting, because um, you, you bring up the uh, the Wii version, and Nintendo consoles with the 3DS included, 3DS, Wii, and Wii U, uh, have the, their gimmicks, and this is not an original um, observation, but like the gimmicks tend to detract from the game. Like the best games don't have them, and the best games are good in spite of them. So like you have something like um, uh, Dawn of Sorrow for for the 3DS or for the the DS, and it has these touchscreen things that are just shoehorned in or oh. awful. And then they do that in uh, Skyward Sword. And this game is one of the exceptions where I think that the 3DS's gimmick, um, the 3D, actually is implemented well and is additive. And that's something that doesn't often happen on the system and one of its main strengths i play with 3d off on most of the 3ds games that i play and this is one of the few that i played 100 percent the whole way through with the 3d on and um we'll talk about like specifically how the 3d gets used in a lot of really cool ways in some of the dungeons but really the the big difference for me was just that it actually didn't feel crappy uh like something i read in one of the i think it was in the iwata asks thing that nintendo posted on their website about this was that they targeted 60 fps on this game and they met it it's it's basically 60 fps the whole way through the game which is unusual for 3ds games um and the reason that they said for that was not because zelda needs to be 60 fps i mean 30 fps is probably fine for a 2d zelda game or whatever but apparently and i don't know technically why this is but it makes sense to me i guess that uh if you're ha- if it's run runs at 60 fps the 3d works better the 3d mm. effect just works more smoothly at higher frame rates and i i totally see that there are games even games that have relatively little on-screen action like fire emblem where the 3d was distracting um it kind of looked funny things in motion kind of had a flicker effect whereas in this game it looked just as good with 3D on as with 3D off, and yet there were things that you could see with a depth that were, you know, that would have been really hard to do without the 3D. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, you just said a word that I think is like really the main reason 3D was so successful in here is that depth was important in this game. Mm -hmm. Like going top to bottom, uh, there's a lot of times where the, the dungeons are very vertical. You're constantly going up and down levels. And I love how they would often have maybe a cut in the floor for you to see two, three, four levels all the way down. You're falling down, you're go being pulled back up. And the 3D just lends itself so well to that. So we're going to be constantly kind of comparing this game to uh, Link to the Past, but we should kind of explain the relationship between these two games more fully. I mean, this is a really unusual move for Nintendo, uh, and I think it's the first time they've done this with the Zelda series, where this is an actual direct sequel to one of the previous Zelda games. This is, you know, in Japan, this is a two at the end of the name. This is Triforce of the Gods 2, um, mm -hmm. which is weird. I mean, they've never done that before. Um, and it takes place in the exact same overworld as the previous game, down to like the tiniest details. Monsters spawn in the same locations. The the world takes almost exactly the same amount of time to walk across. Like every tiny detail of the overworld of this game is basically exactly like the overworld of Link to the Past. But the dungeons are a totally new experience. But they're often named the same thing. It's the Eastern Palace oh, is the Eastern Palace and this game and in a link to the past. There's just a different palace. Yeah, it, it's a uh, it's because it's in the same world, like within the fiction, which we made fun of earlier. <laughs> yeah. But like, and it's worth making fun of. Like, it takes place in the same world just years it's afterwards. It's six generations later. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it is a uh, six generations um, later. All the same people were born with the same name, the same clothes. <laughs> is that is that is that a clever thing? Is that six console generations afterwards between That's the a great question. Is that how many there are between Super Nintendo and? 3DS? Oh man. I mean, that'd be clever. depends on what you Nintendo count. That, yeah. that would be clever. I'd like yeah. to think so. Uh, and I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but they literally, you go into like, I think it's either the palace or the sanctuary, uh, sanctuary, where they have like those paintings. Yep, on that's the wall. in, the, in and, the, uh, the palace, yeah. Yeah, and that's like kind of telling the story of the first one, more or less. Yeah. Is it not? It yeah. is, yeah. So presumably all the events of Link to the Past occur. Ganon is defeated six generations later. You know, no one's done any landscaping, but all they, mm. they did internal reconstruction on all of their dungeons. Their dungeons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And someone six generations later looks exactly like Link. Um, so, Which is in the fiction because there's always a link. Yeah. There's always yeah. a link. There's always a girl. There's always a lighthouse. There's always a link. Like, <laughs> yeah. it is just, it's the, you know, cyclical cyclical storytelling. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty much all we need to say about the fiction of the game. Um, we'll, we'll be, we'll be talking about Reagan. Would the... you say you're a fan of the, uh, Hyrulean lore? I mean, I don't know if I really understand it and I think I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> but in addition to just being essentially like the second quest of link to the past, you know, being kind of an enhanced remake of, I could, I could almost see this have been having you know, being a remake of, of Link to the Past, it's so like it. But they added some things that completely transform the game and make you think about this game that you've played already, or maybe haven't, in a totally new way. You know, it, it's um, This could very easily have been a, a 3D remake of Link to the Past, and that would have been kind of neat, but it wouldn't have added anything, and I think a lot of folks would have kind of considered that you know, kind of garbage. 
but it's not that. They've added two or three really key important things, and the obvious one is the wall merge mechanic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty good little kind of like wow moment, you know, if you were like, oh, that's new, and the the design is kind of fun, and it just it makes you think about the space in a totally different way. Um, where I'm constantly looking for uh, like ledges that I can connect to and maybe bring myself to another ledge or you just think about every it makes you think about walls way more than you've ever thought about in a zelda game before yeah the the most impressive part of this for me was the way that it changed uh kind of puzzles by changing them into this navigation thing because i said something flipping about earlier where like navi points to a thing and you have to shoot it but like there are so many uh puzzles in zelda games that are you know you enter into a room there's something to hit. You just have to look around and find it. Um, and then once you do like a door opens, you know, and usually you have to hit it with whatever you get in the dungeon. Like this kind of takes traversal in Zelda games, which has never been a strength because it's not, a, you know, an, it's an action game, but you don't have like a, uh, you're not very agile. Yeah, you, you know, can't you, jump. You, you can't jump. You run in when you dash, you can, you run in really rigid lines. Um, you move relatively slowly. Your block is not active in most cases. You know, you get to be facing the enemy and it only blocks certain projectiles and everything. Like you're not uh, the most capable hero um, and you're not the most mobile. And this kind of changes that to where like now there's there's a reason to have this vertical space and they're getting around is more of a puzzle in a way that isn't just how do I open a door? Um, it can be, you know, how do I use this combination of falling from ledges and walking through walls and going through cracks and going throughout windows and stuff to actually kind of traverse these uh, these dungeons. These things that have always been kind of 2D spaces, you know, these Zelda dungeons where you're essentially just, uh, you know, every wall is just a immovable obstacle and it's basically walls, buttons, you know hit things with your sword. Um, Every wall now becomes this surface that you can jump onto and move around. And every time you do that, it has this very satisfying kind of moment of discovery. The camera changes from this top-down perspective that really resembles the previous Zelda games to suddenly you have a 3D perspective on the world. The camera moves sort of down into the scene. You're seeing Link walking along the walls. Uh, it's he's still pretty limited in that he can only walk left and right. He still can't jump. Um, he can't walk up hills, for example. It's only a like one dimensional walk left or right along the wall. But you can turn the corner though. Yeah. As long as there's nothing blocking it, he can take a, a full ninety degree turn around a around an edge. Yeah, hugely important because suddenly something, for example, like a block sitting in your way, blocking your path. In a previous Zelda game, you would have had to look all over the level for whatever button it is that you need to hit to lower that block. Here you just merge with the side of the block and you are walking around the side and now you're on the other side of the block. Done. Um, But that also opens up all these really fascinating puzzles with cracks to slide through and ways to move between platforms that aren't connected that you wouldn't necessarily think to without that that merge mechanic. Yeah, and they it actually made them have to design ways of blocking you from merging against walls because they don't have it where like oh, the green walls are the ones you can merge against. Like, if it's a flat space, you can merge against it, even if it means you can only go, like, a step to the left and a step to the right, and you have to unmerge. So there's all these, like, clever little, like, maybe a guardrail that stops you from merging in one spot, or, like, the if it's, like, a rocky wall, there's like just a little, a little rock jutting out from it that stops you from crossing across it, because... The whole world is mergeable, yeah. if you will. And it's this totally new thing, but it feels very much like a part of the Zelda 
it, it feels very of a piece with the rest of the game once you get used to it. First off, um, you know, this is an ability that kind of comes from the villain Yuga. He has a power to turn people into paintings and they turn into these very hieroglyphic or like um, mural painting style of paintings that look very much of a piece with the Zelda kind of world. Um, but apparently it kind of dates back to uh, there's a similar enemy in Ocarina of Time that, you know, it's it's a, a power that I forget which because I haven't played Ocarina of Time all the way through, but apparently this was inspired by one of the late game bosses in, in Ocarina of Time that does a similar thing. Hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't remember. Okay, yeah. never mind. Yeah. Um, Having said okay. that was my I, I don't. It's been I'll link so to long. the Iwata asks where I where I learned that tidbit. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it's uh, it feels very much of a piece with the Zelda world, um, and it it gives you this whole totally new way to play. There's some other really big changes that kind of free up the game and make it like less linear. And the big one there is the item renting system, which I thought I would hate. I mean, it sounds on the face of it like a terrible idea, doesn't it? It, it is. Uh, it, until you start thinking about any of the implications, it does. Like uh, because Zelda games like have a real similar uh, kind of satisfaction curve to Metroid games where the idea is that you start off pretty weak and then you get more powerful you know, as you go and you gain these, these new abilities and this new verb set and the idea that they're not going, that's no longer under control. Like you're no longer going to have this very considered flat curve to go up. Now it is just based on economics. It's, you know, I envisioned when I first heard about this, like, oh, I'm going, this is going to be the first Zelda where I'm going to have to grind for money. That sucks. Yeah. Um, you know, and I was thinking, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, oh, this is actually going to make the puzzles worse because they don't know what you're doing. And in fact, it had the opposite effect where, like, I didn't have to grind for money. It meant that now the fact that there is money in hidden places means something. Like, money is meaningful in yeah. a way that it wasn't before. Um, and it means that they couldn't design the puzzle around an item, which had just become this weird kind of crutch. Uh, those just literally like, oh, this item gets you across small gaps. Well, here's the dungeon of small gaps. Yeah. You know, um, now they can't rely on the fact that you're going to have any specific items with a couple of exceptions. Uh, so it had the exact opposite effect. And to me, like out of all the changes this has, this is the most exciting one uh, to me. Like I, this is, I don't want them to go back from this. Um, I really, really like this. I was initially also like, this is stupid. Like, how am I going to level up basically? Um, but I mean, for the reasons exactly, I think the most important one, like you said, there was that it actually made rupees kind of feel good again. Like most games, really most games that have money at all, there, there reaches a point, usually uh, at the beginning of the game, you don't have enough. And then about halfway through, you have more money than will ever matter. Mm. Um, and it just becomes irrelevant. But this, uh, all the way through, I felt like there was a nice curve where I didn't have enough money to maybe straight out because you can either rent an item for a certain amount or you can buy the item which makes you not have to rent it again and we haven't said yet but basically all of the items are rentable if you die they all go back and you have to re-rent them so it might be like a hundred rupee to rent it or 800 to just buy it and i had made enough money to be able to buy maybe three or four of them but i also died a lot so i was constantly re-renting some of the more important ones uh, and mm -hmm. it, it allowed you a little bit of freedom throughout the map too. I liked that 
they also don't really try to hide the fact on the dungeons that might need one. So, like, uh, there's a fire rod that it shoots fire and it melts ice. And one of the dungeons that you're going to need it actually has, like, an ice block in front of it that you have to melt. Yeah. Mm. And so, so they don't, like, they don't play any tricks with you. If you're going to need an item going into a dungeon, they let you know almost immediately. Sometimes there'll even be, like, a little post that has, like, the emblem <laughs> of a hammer on it. And it's like, okay, I know I need the hammer. But kind of like what you guys were saying is these items aren't the, the, the sole puzzle. More often than not, it's what walls can I cl- cling to and how do I use the, the space to get around. And these items are just kind of like an extra level of puzzle and not the puzzle. Yeah, and when I came to a moment where I could use an item, it was like, oh, sweet, a spot where I can melt some ice. And it's, it's more of like an optional shortcut that, you know, I could have probably gotten around this by merging with walls, by maybe doing two or three other things. But it, it gives you... It actually was more rewarding. It wasn't like, I have the key item and now I will use it to get past the places where they put an obstacle that works with this key item. It more it felt a little more creative because sometimes you would be able to use the item that you had with you. Other times you'd see an option and think, oh, damn, if I'd only brought the fire rod with me, I could melt that ice and get that extra rupee or whatever. Yeah, and they even have some uh, fun little like caves that you'll find that'll just be, you walk in and there's a treasure hunter and there'll be two little posts that are like the hookshot and the boomerang. And if you have those, this little cave is a singular puzzle built into itself that'll use just the hookshot and the boomerang. And if you solve it, it usually resolves in about 100 rupees. And they're fun. Yeah, which which stays significant. And and the idea that... Because um, whenever you have this kind of uh, Metroid or Zelda structure to the your world where you're going around getting items that allow you to access things uh, that you saw before... Um, the worst thing, the thing you want least is a key. Like you get an item that's like, oh, this literally like there's a certain block with an X on it. And this thing gets rid of blocks with an X, blocks with an X on it, you know? Um, but every item in A Link Between Worlds has so much utility, oftentimes more than one thing it can do. Like it can affect the world. It can have an effect on enemies and it's very rarely does it just damage them. Um, specifically the, uh, the wind item that oh, like, yeah. It was a crowd control item. Like, oh, this thing has utility. Like, it's always going to be useful no matter what. There's nothing, there's no thing that you're going to have with you that is a bad thing to have with you. And that ties into the upgrade system where you're, you know, powering these things up, which you do by exploring, which there's a reason to do now because of money. And it, it, everything leans on itself in this way where it's connected in this kind of web where it supports itself rather than having mechanics that exist only as a single strut or that undercut other mechanics. Yeah. And I can say that this is like, I had so much more of an incentive to like a hundred percent this game than I did with link to the past because of things like the my Mai where you can, you know, the, mm. the, the upgrade mechanic for, you know, up, once you've bought an item, you can upgrade it to kind of a super version of that item by exploring the world and finding there's this gigantic squid called a Mai Mai or Mother Mai Mai and then she's got a hundred babies all throughout both Hyrule and Low Rule. Uh, it's, it's my favorite love it's the the Mai Mai with a hundred young yeah. in the woods. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> like, Very Lovecraftian. Yeah. And uh and you know, the they're really easy to find because they have this like noise but every single one of them is placed with care in an interesting place where you have to think a little bit laterally in order to uh you have to explore the world in a slightly new way in order to to get it um so there'll be things like well i have to go over to low rule and then get to this very specific spot and then get back to high rule and now i'm in a place where i wouldn't have been able to get without doing that or they're on on walls that you have to be very creative to 
you know, to get to and pop the Mai Mai off the wall. There's all sorts of little ways that they make these little Mai Mai's easy to locate, but difficult to grab in ways that mm. make this make you try new things in the world, explore a lot. And that little sound they make, like once you enter into the area where one is nearby, it makes like a crying sound. And you just like, very rarely would I enter into a zone, hear the crying and just be like, well, I'm not leaving until I found that in my mind. Because <laughs> like you do so much traveling though, especially when you're on maybe kind of one of the edges of the world. You're like, well, I probably won't be back here. So if I don't get this Mai Mai right now, then I never will. And since it lit, lend itself to upgrading, you feel incentivized properly to actually find them. Yeah, I think that it has to be brilliant, brilliant design to make me want to collect collectibles yeah, in the game. I, I was just going to say, like, it, it's it's distracting you with something that's meaningful and fun, um, you know, Fun because they do play some with care, like you said, Reagan. Meaningful because the upgrades are actually significant and you get them at a steady clip. Like collecting 10 Mai Mai's is not that big a deal. So you're going to get some upgrades. Compare that with a modern Ubisoft game <laughs> where like you open the map and it is just a nightmare clusterfuck of collectibles. Get all and, of the sea shanties. <laughs> and what do they do? Like, you know, sound tests. You yeah. know, like, or like, you know, somebody will sing a new song or you get an achievement at worst. You know, it's not, it's not meaningful and there are too many of them and it's boring. And this game could have done that. Like if it had like six or seven different types of Mai Mai's, but there's, there's two things to collect. It's rupees and Mai Mai's. They both do things that are, that you want to do anyway. And they're both frequent enough. And the pursuit is there's a twist, like Nate was saying, like these little like challenge dungeons and uh, and then just kind of this, uh, you know, oh, there's a spot of wall that looks a little bit different. I bet you I get something. I'm going to like what I get there. You know, it's not going to feel meaningless in a way that they haven't really done. Like in, in Link to the Past, they would reserve that for heart containers, mm -hmm. uh, but you can only have so many heart containers. Yeah, I think there were only game. 20. So, you know, yeah, well, I mean, well, you, you get the pieces. So you get the pieces oh, that yeah. are part of them. Um but you can't put that behind everything. This just allows it to be so much more dense because there are also art containers, you know, like there are also things, you, you know, you're always getting, I think there are, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, um, there yeah. are. Yeah, and they're normally been... like the next level puzzle. Like you almost like, if you have a tier, it's like the, a Mai Mai might be really, really simple. A chest with a, a, a silver, which is a hundred rupees might mm -hmm. be, oh, if it had the hook shot and you had the boomerang and you did it perfectly, you end up with a chest with a hundred rupees. And then the heart container is like, oh, you found the secret door in the dungeon yeah. that led you to the balcony that had the heart container. So it allows for these, you know, these tiers of puzzles. And Zelda's always supposed to be a game about action and puzzles, right? But most of the time, it's just like either big puzzles or you're running from one place to another. And this allowed it like, hey, I'm traveling from the Eastern Palace to the North Woods or the... the what is Lost the, the Lost Woods, thank you. <laughs> They're on the north side of the map. Uh, the Lost Woods. And along the way, I found three Mai Mais and, you know, a hundred rupees, and it felt great. It never and feels I, like an obligation. Yeah. Like, it never feels like, like, I didn't 100% this. I probably got 60 or 70 Mai Mais mm -hmm. um, and felt good about it because I was just like, I think I'm ready to be done with this game. But at no point was I resenting it, which, like, that doesn't happen with collection stuff. Like I always resent it at some point. And, and part of it is because I'm specifically very sensitive to that. And part of it is because the game does it so well. Yeah. yeah. I just I generally with collectibles, I, it is a non factor to me. I like, I will in games that have them that are like, they're particularly useful, not even bothering to grab them. Cause I, 
could care. I, there's not an amount of me that could care any less about collectibles. And this isn't a collectible. This is a game mechanic that makes yeah. your character, makes your character stronger. Every once in a while, I think back to myself. I was like, oh, like I used to like the, the Grand Theft Auto games a lot. What, what do you mean that younger me did all the ambulance missions in San Andreas? <laughs> yeah. Like, that doesn't sound right. Am I sure about that? Like, it wasn't yeah. a fugue state or a, a coma fantasy that I had or something like that. Um, but no, it's true. I have just like now I just get so enraged by that shit. Yeah. I just yeah. can't imagine it. I don't know where that changed. I think it I think it may have been when I started having to go to work. Yeah. yeah well, that's, it's that's it's probably it's it, one yeah. of the main concepts of kind of what we kind of try to accomplish with this podcast is that people adding unnecessary things to bulk the time of their game. Yeah. yeah. Because in in game design often outside of the indie sphere time equals value, right? And so, well, oh, adding this collectible system will add five hours to the game. So now when we market, we can say over 100 hours of gameplay. When in reality, it's like 20 hours of core gameplay and 80 hours of unnecessary garbage. Yes, yeah. And now that we are done shitting on collectibles. (laughs) Just a a really quick to like... Yes, uh, no, please do. Sum that up. Like for people who are maybe on the fence about this, something that we say all the time on on our shows, but... Um, you're getting to the same point is like, this is a Zelda that respects your time. Yeah. And that doesn't happen. That's worth lauding and pointing out because it's a rare and special thing. Uh, so if you, if you feel, I felt that way that like games are not, you know, kind of big budget games. Cause this is a big AAA game that was from a major developer. Like it's a pretty big game. It's not like an indie thing, but if you've been feeling like big games don't respect your time, I think that I can comfortably say that this one does. And that's maybe the nicest thing I can say, you know, that's maybe the highest compliment you can pay a game. Yeah. Particularly on this show. That's the main reason we decided to do this game for this show it was a zelda game that respects your time and you know obviously we all have kind of different opinions on on the whole zelda series but you guys can feel about it later yeah (laughs) well well no i'm i I have the least amount i can't say anything with any amount of opinion other than that 15 years ago i loved ocarina of time (laughs) so i can be very easily swayed. but like that's the reason we did this game it was a zelda game that we could talk about that is actually not short by our terms, but respectful of your time and is constantly engaging. So before we dive in and start talking, you know, kind of point by point about some of the really awesome dungeons and other, you know, quote unquote plot elements of this game, um, (laughs) I wanted to talk just a little bit about the art and the music because while not like groundbreaking, (laughs) I think this they really did something really fascinating here. Uh, first off, the visuals are a completely pitch perfect, you know, translation of these 2D sprites into 3D space. And they did some really clever things with it. I mean, all of the all of the monsters and, you know, everything looks exactly like it would if you were to take that 2D sprite and just kind of show it to someone and say, what would this look like in 3D? Everything is recognizable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty easy to yeah. tell what it is immediately. Yeah, but it's all this top-down perspective, which feels 2D, but it is truly 3D. And something that's really fascinating about it is that they had to actually tilt all of their uh, their models 
back or up a little bit in order for you to be able to see them. So you know, we're looking directly down. This isn't actually isomorphic in, in its uh, angle, uh, although it kind of feels that way. You're actually looking straight down from above, which is great because we're never, you know, we're never, it's never ambiguous where Link's sword is pointing, for example. And, you know, he's never standing in front of something that you need to see. But you can still see Link's face. You don't just see the top of Link's head. You can still see, you know, the fronts of buildings. And that's because every single 3D model in this game is tilted back almost 90 degrees. You don't mm -hmm. notice it, but it's a really clever trick to give you this, this uh, really awesome... Uh, perspective that doesn't exist is, in reality is ev is everything I'm trying to like do it on the video is everything running then like if we were to actually see them all running around like that everybody's running kind of leaning back yeah I'm gonna put a link in the show notes to a photo that they put in on the Nintendo website that kind of explains the trick they pulled here and if you guys look it's in the show notes uh, it's just scroll down a little bit it, they are actually leaning back like they're in a high wind. I mean, it's hysterical, but you don't see it. You don't see that happen because it's just this really <laughs> clever trick of the eye to make you think you're looking straight down and still somehow magically able to see Link's face. Yeah, I never thought about that. It's so seamless. I I did not even realize that. It plays into one of my favorite things about games like in that, you know, one of, one of the cranky old man things I talk about on, on our show is like, how frustrated I get with this race towards uh, verisimilitude and photorealism and, and things like that. And like, I'm always a big fan of visual, you know, games in general, but specifically visuals that take advantage of the artifice, you know, like it's like, Oh, this is a game, which means we can, we don't have to worry about if this can exist in real space. Like we can just do it to, with the player in mind rather than any kind of sense of realism in mind, you know, and that's really cool. I like that a lot. Well, yeah, because anything you do photorealistic is only going to eventually look dated. And that's yeah. like, I think Twilight that's one of the, Princess. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things in game design is anytime you do re photorealism, it just immediately is dating your game. It's only kind of hard. You could also just not do it. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's really easy not to not to make it look dated. Well, well, that's yeah. what, and that's what I mean. Like anything that is like a graphic showcase is just telling me that I'm going to think your game looks like you know, looks like crap in three years. Yeah, I think mm. this is going to really stand up, though, because it feels like... Well, right, yeah, it, exactly. But it is still 3D, and so you get this really... You get all the benefits of 3D without any of the downside because you're never, yeah. me, you're never trying to control a camera, you know? Yeah, and, and it, what it does is it makes those moments when it uses the, the depth feel really cool because they you forget about it. Like, it feels 2D for large portions because you're kind of playing with your toys. Like, you're looking down on... on you know, a bunch of uh, little men and you're moving them around. And then all of a sudden you have to do something with depth. Like, oh, I have to actually fall down there. This exists in space. Like this is, and and every time that's revealed, it feels really neat. Yeah. There's a uh, a dungeon later on. Actually, it's you getting to the dungeon. Um, there's the last one that I did, but is the ice ruins where there's a set of moving platforms and you have to fall through another set of moving platforms, which is very much below you. And it requires that perfect amount of timing where, you know, you're kind of jumping off before mm. it's below you. So you land on it when it's below you. And if you miss, like say from the very first one, you fall a pretty good distance and you're just like, wow, this game, like it, it really looks nice. And that depth, you really feel it as you're plummeting to your <laughs> death into a pit of lava. For what it's worth, this game has a plot, and um, 
It begins as all of these games do in Link's house, and he's woken up by his annoying friend Gully, um, who unfortunately persists through the rest of the game. He's the Navi, the Navi of this game. No, he's not that bad. Good lord! <laughs> oh, but if he has to be the Navi, but you're grading on a curve. Fortunately, he's imprisoned yeah. very early in the game. <laughs> if only well, we could do well, that to yeah. Navi. Lost. And then found out to be in prison. He's got his little spit curl, and he tells you to wake up and and run to the blacksmith's house where you uh, you know you meet some characters and you get a sword. Great, we're started. We're on our way, and um, it's kind it's, of got yeah, a lot of dialogue. Yeah, it, I, you could be forgiven for thinking this is going to suck at this point um, because it does really feel like and and I would I would say and this could just be my general goodwill towards the game talking that like the actual dialogue and character is a little bit better than average for the series but it's still not why I play the series so even if you know these characters are kind of charming you know at certain points like it doesn't really matter because I'm not looking for that Um, but they give this up surprisingly quick it's just initially we have to hold your hand um, we're Nintendo, and it's what we do. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, if, looking at my notes, uh, most of the dungeons are two paragraphs, and looking at this first chunk of the game is three pages, because it's just talk to this person, go over there, talk to that person, go over here. So kind of trying to get through it, because a lot of that doesn't really matter. You know, we meet the captain, we have to bring a sword to him, so we have to do a lot of running around the game world, and this is a great opportunity to kind of take in that uh, that you know link to the the past uh, landscape that we may or may not be familiar with. Um, but, well, absolutely. Like it, it's, it's preying on your nostalgia. Yeah, it really is. At this is. point, like it's trying to make you feel, you know, feel that because like, it's not necessary to have played Link to the Past to play this, but you should, um, you're going to like it more, <laughs> you, should. you know? Yeah. Like, well, you should anyway, cause it's great, but yeah. also you're going to feel better like this, you know, it's, it's nostalgia baiting, but in a way that I'm okay with because you know, it, cause I'm the target audience for it. Yeah. It's, a, it's like, it's, it's maybe like, you know, not great, uh, practices, but I like it cause it feels good. Yeah. You could play these, I think in reverse order and still enjoy them oh, almost yeah. as much, but really having played Link to the past, this first walk through, you know, uh, through Kakariko village and over to, um, to Hyrule castle, uh, was full of delightful similarities to the old game and a couple of really evocative, interesting things that stood out because they weren't like the guards are in the process of washing graffiti off of the outside walls of the, uh, of the, of the palace, which is, you know, foreshadowing the, uh, you know, what's going to be happening very shortly. So, yeah, I like that. The, like the main bad guys, like first strike. It's just like, <laughs> like fuck these people yeah, graffitiing the walls yeah. of the castle. <laughs> they ignored my graffiti. Now I'll whatever now, yeah. it is that I his goal is that's very heed my warning. Yeah. So beware the Bartman. <laughs> so um we run to deliver the sword um at the sanctuary. Uh, which, of course, isn't a church. It's definitely not a church. The <laughs> Nintendo of America has definitely decided this is not a church. And um, and it is a Triforce of Courage and not of the gods. And inside the sanctuary, you know, we just outside the sanctuary, we meet Ceres and Dampe and their, you know, generic old wise lady and a very cute gravedigger. He's adorable. Um, well, he's... Dampe is the gravedigger in... Ocarina of Time, I'm pretty sure, or like there's the ghost of Dampe, 
or it's something very similar to I'm that. I'm sure it's all lore, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, he's just a cute little character. He's digging some graves. And um, then the doors to the sanctuary slam shut, and uh, Ceres inside is screaming, and so we have to get in. And so we get our very first taste of a kind of mini, slight tutorial dungeon where we have to die- go in through a grave um, in order to get inside of the sanctuary. And um, if you hadn't played a Zelda before, this is where it teaches you some of the very basics. So it's got all the typical stuff in that, it, you know, it's got uh, keys in chests. It's got, uh, you know, light torches to open doors, as if that made sense uh, mm-hmm. in reality. And uh, all the other typical typical beeswax there. That's also where we get the lantern, which is a pretty important item in most Zelda games. Yeah, th- this part always, I try to think of this in terms of what's going to come later. Like, yeah. part of this is, like, this is not nearly as inventive as they're going to, to become, um, but they, they're using this to kind of lure you into a false sense of security, so it has greater impact when they subvert mm-hmm. this later. Or at least that's what it felt like to me. Absolutely. And, of course, yeah. there are going to be people for whom this is their first Zelda game, and so it's probably yeah. important for that purpose as well. Get the and, baseline. And it, it gets that out of the, the way very intelligently and smoothly and it does it in almost exactly the same way that link to the past does it so if you are familiar with that game this is going to be a repeat Um, but it's easy to quickly get through Uh, once we're inside the sanctuary we see yuga so i mean yuga is like gross like (laughs) he's he's the the main villain of the game um yeah i don't know if uh like rapey is an an acceptable term but uh he is (laughs) if i had to i'd go with that yeah, he's he's pretty gross. Yeah. He's also like he's also uh evil clown as well. Yeah. yeah. So he's got he's got both going for him. Like he he's he doesn't respect, you know, the body sovereignty of ladies <laughs> and then also is spooky clownish. He, he's like Mr. Burns dressed up as a wizard basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and he's got a magic whatever it is that uh that lets him trap people in paintings and he seems to be doing this for his own amusement so he traps Ceres uh in a painting to carry her away because he thinks she's more beautiful as a painting than as a person Uh, so there we are we're knocked out by Yuga in our first confrontation with him and we wake up again the next day repeating the cycle of Link being knocked unconscious and then waking up he wakes up again at his house and it's at this moment that we meet Ravio probably the weirdest character in the game yeah yeah and the the twist for ravio is really strange too which we'll talk about later i don't yeah really want to get ahead very of weird i think it's a weird twist like i'm okay with it but it's odd so ravio is a weird dude in a purple rabbit costume who shows up in your house and asks to stay and I guess for some reason we say yes and very shortly he will take up residence there turn your house into a shop and be the renting guy for the game so he is our go-to for the entire item rental mechanic yes which like the 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 what for is about how he gets there and the like like this this felt even to me like them being purposely perfunctory like just get him in there he just has to be somewhere and Link's real estate makes the most sense yep. geographically in the world. That's the only place the rental house should be mm-hmm. because it acts as kind of a, a hub for the, the spokes of the rest of the things. So it's like, he might as well be there. Um, and then like, it has a little bit of relevance once you find out more about Ravio later that he's there, but not, 
you know, it just felt like, again, like this feels like them putting in the pieces, putting together the pieces um, as quickly as they can yeah. and unobtrusively as they can. Yeah. We also see his little bird friend that is responsible for grabbing your items when you die. Mm. Um, so, you know, how the bird can travel between worlds to do this and carry all of these objects, you know, doesn't matter. His little bird friend is very cute. So, yeah, uh, sorry. I, mm-hmm. One of the silliest things about uh, this early part of the game, though, is you're like traveling through the different parts, like right around your house is, and especially once you go into the castle, they're like, oh, who are you? Oh, who are you? But your house is centrally located and the only house that's anywhere near the castle. So I feel mm-hmm. like everybody would know who you are just because you're like the only one who lives in that area. And nobody <laughs> seems to know who you are. And it drove me crazy the whole time. It's like, oh, who are you? I don't know. I've been your neighbor forever. My house is literally in your front yard. There are literally 40 people in the entire country. Well, he's just a kid. That's true. Yeah, just but like, well, yeah. it is constantly, oh, are you? who are you? Like, it would have been easier to just be like, hey, neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Ravio gives us a bracelet. It's kind of ugly, but it factors in <laughs> very soon and, uh, and tells us uh, to report about Yuga to Princess Zelda. So we're back to, uh, to the castle. And um, at that moment, uh, we have to wait around the lobby for a while and take a look at the paintings. And finally, we meet Zelda. And um, the character models in this are super freaking cute. I mean, like totally 80s, My Little Pony, like starry eyed, adorable. Yeah, it is, it is darling. Work, I don't know. It worked for me. I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm kind of a, a I'm kind of a goof for that. Yeah. But uh, once again, she sends us out to go find, uh, she doesn't know what's up. She gives you her lucky charm, uh, which is one of the orbs that the pendant things and sends you off to ask. Sahasrala. 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 Why do they put that name in a children's game repeatedly? Like, I think if I was like the target demographic age for, you know, the, the younger range that they print on the box here, I think I'd stare at that and think I hadn't learned to read right. Like, I don't know how to pronounce that. Hey, man, Hermione. Playing that at the playing that at the, uh, playing that at the age uh, in Link to the Past, because this is a legacy character. I just skipped past it. Right. It's, well, just, it's, it's that like, guy. Yeah, S-H. it's one of those those words in anything like this where you like, you know that it exists. You can connect it to something but you've never thought about saying it out loud. The curse of the podcaster. Yeah. Or like with Harry Potter, I always read it as, you know, mm. as Hermoine, you know, and then you hear it and then you hear it read out loud. And you're like, oh, okay, fine. That's how I, I have to matter. admit that I, I pronounced that her, Hermione for the entire first book in my head and, and then was later. Sure, because it doesn't matter as, it doesn't. Long as, you, as long as you know what it's referencing. Yeah. Like what... It, you know what human it's connected to then that's all that matters so continuing the entirely overcomplicated gopher plot line um sir harsher he lives in kakariko village you go find him he sends you off to go find his apprentice osfala who's at the eastern palace so we've already traversed the map from end to end just in the beginning here and once mm-hmm. we get to the eastern bal- eastern palace uh which uh, we find out we actually can't get in without a bow and arrow. So we have to head back to Ravio and get it. So we've now basically hit all four corners of the map in, well, three of the four corners of the map in some way in order just to get started with the first dungeon, which sounds tedious, but actually it's, it was at a pretty brisk pace. Well, they're also showing you around. Yeah. Like, uh, and they're showing you the idea that you're going to need to 
um, need certain items for certain dungeons, and they're forcing you to rent so you can get that mechanic so you can't just kind of sequence break. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're going to be going through basically all of the dungeons here, but um, this is where the game starts to open up a little bit. It's not quite ready to let you free on all of the dungeons yet, but kind mm -hmm. of like uh, Link to the Past did, uh, it kind of sets you up with a little mini quest to begin with before you begin the full-fledged, you know, open-ended pick your dungeon quest. So mm -hmm. we have one of these pendants. Either they've got a name. I don't remember what it is. Um, but uh, we'll need all three of them in order to get the Master Sword. And we know we're going to need the Master Sword because it's got Master in the name. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have to go at all three of the dungeons that contain these. These are all the, the first three dungeons in Hyrule. Uh, and the first one is the Eastern Palace itself. Yeah, Let's, we should talk about one of the major differences in the game that we, we didn't mention before is this idea that uh, instead of having consumables, you have just a magic meter that powers everything. Oh, yeah. That uh, slowly recharges, which is great. Oh, my God. Because yes. there was always a thing in Zelda where it's like, OK, I need arrows um, if you're in a dungeon that needs arrows for puzzles and usually it was just shoot, finding a target and shooting it, every single pot in that dungeon would give you arrows, um, which is great from a perspective of making sure you don't get stuck, but it's annoying from a variety perspective, you know, and an exploration perspective. Like if, if you know, Hey, maybe I want some rupees or some hearts, like, you know, get off my dick. Like I need some arrows. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, or like, you know, I want to find new cool stuff. I want to find switches and everything. And they're just forced to put arrows under everything. Now they've totally got rid of that. There's no, you know, there's no bombs. There's no arrows. Uh, it's just magic and yeah. magic refill. If, if it's a place where you need to be able to use an item, they'll throw a couple of magic refills there. But every single other pot and destroyable in the game is open for, for treasure, for actual things you'd want. Yeah, and that's huge because it also means that you don't get into those situations where, for example, in a boss battle, you run out of arrows halfway through and are left with a really suboptimal way of killing them or maybe no yeah. way at all. Or There's all sorts of situations that that really just, it feels more modern. Um, you know, having yeah. to go and buy a bunch of potions or whatever to be able to have enough like green magic meter for a whole dungeon was always probably the most frustrating thing mm -hmm. about the the first game here. This just allows you to run panicked in a circle until your magic meter refills and then you can fire three arrows as fast as you can at the boss and then run, <laughs> then run panicked in a circle uh, again and then fire three more arrows yeah and that's how i beat yuga but we'll go <laughs> <laughs> i remember i had a ton of situations in link to the past where i would accidentally use the uh the lantern at an inopportune time and suddenly i had just burned through half of my magic and i was screwed for the rest of the dungeon and had to like warp out or something and, and try it again from scratch so that was a huge refreshing change mm -hmm. um, so we get into the Eastern Palace, and really, it's a very standard dungeon, very similar to any of the early game dungeons in uh, in Link to the Past. So it's not really throwing us any curveballs here. It's got the typical stuff like you enter a room, snakes or whatever drop from the ceiling, kill them all, and the, then the doors will unlock again. You know, th those yeah, types well, of puzzles. Well, at this point, because at this point, we haven't yet been given the power to merge into walls. Exactly. So it is, like, literally the same as the puzzles from... Mm -hmm. Link to the past, mm -hmm. but it's already starting to play a little bit with depth. You know, there's a, there's an elevator platform. There's some transparent walkways. There's some places where we can see that depth. You know, it's taking advantage of the 3D in a way that does already look kind of cool. It just really hasn't gone full into those. You know, hasn't really opened its box of tools yet. Um, and we get to the boss room. 
it's Yuga. He's confronting Osfala, the um, the apprentice guy, and he traps him in a painting, and he also traps you in the wall. But because of the cool bracelet that Ravio gave you, you're able to hop back out of the wall. And this is this is where it first shows you that uh, wall merging mechanic. And then what I really appreciated here was that then the entire rest of this dungeon is about playing around with that wall mm-hmm. merging mechanic and trying a hundred different ways to use it. And uh, we get to see the outside wall of the dungeon. We get to, and it peppers the entire rest of this area. There's no uh, enemies at all after this point in this dungeon, or maybe just a couple very small ones. Um, and it is full of rupees and chests and mm. other things to encourage you to try using your new wall merging mechanic to get to all of these little places that you can now access. Yeah, it's also showing you play parts of this that you didn't see in A Link to the Past for the first time, which is really fun. Like the first time you go out a window and you're like, oh, of course there was a back to this, but I never saw it partly because it was a 2D game and partly because I never had any mobility to get out there. Like it's really satisfying and kind of cool to have your imagination uh, as like a 13 year old boy justified you know, 20 years later. Yeah, like you'd never really thought about, okay, what does the outside of this dungeon look like? What does the back wall of the Eastern Palace have on it? Like, mm-hmm. and of course what it has is tons and tons of rupees sitting randomly on shelves. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, uh, and we also learned that, um, I believe it's in this point, that like rupees and hearts might be painted onto the wall. Oh, and, yeah. And you pick them up by walking through them while on the wall. And that feels great every time too, because it's another just tiny little maybe puzzle or just reason for exploration that they build throughout the entire game is where, because of your top down view, you might not see like the wall that's, you know, if you're like on the South side of it, you might not see what's on that wall. So you'll fuse to it or merge to it. And on that wall that you couldn't see is four hearts or three red rupees or whatever. And it gives you this incentive just at all times, just be merging onto walls just to see what's there. Or maybe there's like a a hairline crack that you actually slip through and that puts you into a secret treasure room or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, So we get out of the dungeon and uh, we obviously need the Master Sword. We meet back up with and. um, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, <laughs> yes. the, the person in question. Yes. The and perp. and uh, so we know now that we need to get all three of these pendants. We've already got the pendant of virtue. That's the one that uh, that uh, Zelda gave us. We need two more. And we're going to find those in the two other dungeons in uh, the overworld here. And they are the House of Gales and the Tower of Hera. Uh, and we can do those in either order. Um mm-hmm. We also meet up with Irene, the junior witch, granddaughter of the potion witch. And um, the potion witch from the previous game, it, it maybe is still alive after six generations, or it's just another very similar looking witch. Well, she has a little buddy. And um, Irene gives you a bell that'll let you fast travel. And the fast travel mm-hmm. here works totally differently than it did in, with the duck in Link to the Past. Yeah. Like, keep, like it's so it's such a nod to usability that they give you this right after the first dungeon as soon as you could possibly want to use it. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to being hidden fairly deep in, in Link to the Past um, and requiring one of the more annoying uh, puzzles where you have to kind of dig for the flute mm-hmm. in the forest. And oh, it's, God. It's, you know, there's like 80 different spots it could be in, 80 or 90, and you just kind of have to dig around and know that it'll be there. 
Um, here, you know, they just give it to you because fast travel is a right, not a privilege. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that's, it's clear they're thinking about just usability here. And we didn't talk about usability as another angle for the, um, uh, for the item rental mechanic, but a big part of that is that they kind of expect that many, if not most of the people that play this game are probably people who have played a link to the past already. And I think it would have actually been very frustrating to have to, to not be able to get some of those basic items that you, you got used to using, you know, playing link to the past over the years, like not having the boomerang, um, for, you know, six hours of this game would have been a bit frustrating, uh, mm. but get, it, giving you access to all of those things and even the fast travel and other, you know, niceties like that right off the bat means that even if you are used to all that stuff from the old game, you can pick right back up where you left off. Yeah, absolutely. So we have another important, um, uh, item that we're about to get very early in the game, and that's the flippers. Uh, so going to the House of Gales requires the flippers. We need to be able to swim. And um, I don't remember how I found out about this. I just kind of remembered from the previous game. Uh, it's, I probably need to get those from Zora's realm, so I headed in that direction. Uh, there's probably a hint somewhere in the game. They kind of guide you over there. There's, I think you... I remember finding my way over there earlier in the game, and they're like, oh man, some guy ran by and jumped over this ledge. Too bad I can't jump that far. And you're like, oh, I can't jump that far either. But now that you have the wall merge thing, you're like, oh yeah, I could just, it's like a ledge with a wall next to it. So you remember, hey, I can just go back there and merge to that wall and I'll be able to get right across that ledge. Yeah, so we can run right over to Zora's Realm, which is much, much, much easier to get to in this game than it was in the previous game. There's like fewer enemies and now that we have our wall merge mechanic, we can go straight there. And, um, uh, Zora is rather than very <laughs> okay. This was what Dis the, I mean, I don't so even know. Weird. Um, this is the weirdest part of this game, I think. Yeah. So Zora, rather than being a giant lizard or whatever, I don't know, sea monster, is a giant, overweight, like, li uh, uh, like fish woman, pig fish, like pig fish woman. Yeah. And apparently, <laughs> like when you get there, her little minions are uh, are distraught because apparently her smooth gem has been stolen, and it's the only thing that keeps her from becoming fatter by the minute. And they're worried about being crushed. Yeah, this is this is weirdly fat phobic. Yeah, for no real reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like so to no weird. to no end. Like that's not that's not something that typically will trigger for or like not trigger. Like I don't have trigger for it, but like will not typically. <laughs> Uh, you know, kind of set me off, or I won't notice it. But this is so to no end. Yeah, <laughs> like it is just like there's no point. A weird, goofy, fat joke in the middle of this uh, the Zelda game for kids that I thought. Well, was yeah, kind of, it's like she's yeah. getting fat, and it is life threatening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like it's just it's just a little bit like okay, you know, and and it's also um like a, quest wise, this is kind of weird too, to have you go do this little fetch quest. Like we're still in fetch quest mode. And the game hasn't like lit us lit off lit us off the shackles entirely yet. It's so a it's a fetch quest in order to take on a fetch quest in order to get to yes. the because we have to get the gem in order to get the flippers in order to get to the dungeon that we know we need to get yeah. to. So it's kind of a fetch quest in a fetch quest. Um, 
And uh, but it does give us a reason to visit Kakariko Village because apparently the guy who stole it, who's referred the to as shady guy, yeah, shady guy, <laughs> he ran off to Kakariko Village and immediately sold the smooth gem to the merchant there. And so you can go and buy it back for 200 rupees, which is also so silly because I was expecting it to be like, oh, he sold it. So I'm going to fight the guy and get it back because I'm Link and I'm going to fight. And then, no, you just you just go and buy it. Yep. You, you buy like 300 rupees or whatever, and you buy it back. Yep. And, and also in the process of giving us all of the mobility we can possibly handle right at the start. This is also where we yeah. get the Pegasus boots. Um, so, you know, I don't remember at what point those came in in Link to the Past, but I remember it feeling like a huge time saver. Like, I've been walking back and forth in this game for hours. Well, an idiot. Yeah. Right up yeah. front, we get the Pegasus boots so we can do the dash. I love how the Pegasus boots are optional and they're testing to, to get them at this point. No, nobody tells you how to get them, which is by hiding in the wall to surprise this guy. Um, Cause he can always run away from you. Um, you have to just kind of figure it out. Yeah. So it, it's an optional item. You don't actually need it can, at any point. I think it's just using optional dungeons. Can I be honest with you guys? I don't think I got the Pegasus boots. Everything, everything, everything you're saying to me right now doesn't sound familiar. The, the can, dash I, can, right? I can hack a, a 3DS to have a Navi show you where it's at. That'll make you more comfortable. Um, I'm sorry. That was, that was mean, and I apologize. No, I deserve that. No, 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 you didn't. You didn't. No, nobody deserves. Nobody deserves Navi. <laughs> nobody deserves yeah. a Navi. So uh, we've got our Pegasus boots. We've got it. Maybe. Uh, we've got our flippers, so we just run back and give the smooth gem down uh, to uh, to the fat lady, and we get our flippers. Yeah, thank God she doesn't have to hey, live like that anymore. Well, oh, my yeah. God. That, there'd be nothing worse than being yeah. that fat. Yeah. yeah and boy, how'd she even... Why didn't she just kill herself? <laughs> and a fish, so... Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, I guess that's true. Like, if, they, if that whole quest had just been about somebody turning into a fish... I would have been like way more into it yeah. and more on board. Like that is terrifying. Yeah. Or like she's losing her sanity. Or there's like, there's a, <laughs> That's a little dark a, for <laughs> Well, but there's a million other options than her just like, I'm getting fat. Yeah. She's oh! turning into a reverse mermaid. <laughs> yeah. And just <laughs> grossing me out. And uh, so we've got, we've got all this stuff. Um, now we have an opportunity to kind of wander around uh, Hyrule. We can uh, get familiar with Kakariko Village and talk to all the weird people there, including the bee guy. Um, <laughs> I, I think somebody was watching The Simpsons for that. Yeah. And we can collect some bottles, uh, get the, the the mosquito net or whatever you call it. There, there's a bunch of little things that are optional at this point. Um, but it, you know, this is where you, you know, the, the world is now finally kind of opened up to you. And since you've got the flippers, and the Pegasus boots, you can, and the butt and the bell, you can get to any part of Hyrule at this point for the most part. But we'll probably need one more thing before we can take on the next dungeon, and that's the tornado rod. It's totally new, isn't it? That's not from Link to the Past. Yeah, that, that's a new item. Yeah, and there's a bunch of really neat new items, but actually the tornado rod is one of my favorites because, uh, like you said earlier, it's a crowd control thing. It pushes all enemies kind of away from you, but also Link kind of hovers when he uses it. So if you hit that tornado rod, it kind of works like a helicopter and you go straight up. It's not truly a jump because you can't move horizontally while you're elevated using the tornado rod, but it lifts you straight up and that's used a whole bunch in dungeons to let you kind of move between moving platforms. So really neat puzzles come in later that wouldn't have been possible in Link to the Past where let's say for example, um, two platforms are moving and they pass one above the other. By using that tornado rod, you can move from one to the other by going up a level or down a level. And it's, it's something that you wouldn't have been able to see in Link to the Past. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we finally have access to the House of Gales. It's the second dungeon in the game. 
is, is not really anything exciting to say about it. We have some opportunity to use our wall merge power in some interesting ways. Um, we get to play with the tornado rod, like I was mentioning, and kind of move between platforms. Um, but this one was was kind of kind of by the numbers. Didn't didn't blow me away. Anything interesting to you guys about the House of Gales? I, th- I think they hide their best dungeons in, in uh, low rule. Yeah. As well, like I think that's where they do the most. That's where the best boss fights are, and kind of the yeah. most interesting concepting. This, like this, this, this whole, whole first, yeah, yeah. I think we we're about to say the same thing. Yeah, this whole first set of like getting the three pendants, getting to until you finally open up low rule is when the dungeons become truly interesting and I think truly unique. Yeah, it's a reprise of things from Link to the Past. Um, we do get to fight the boss here, which is called Margomil. It's basically a stack of pancakes with an eyeball on the top, and. Uh, <laughs> And each of the pancakes kind of moves independently and we have to use the tornado rod to kind of blow layers out from under it and or jump up on top of Margo Mill and hit it in the eye. Um, kind of a neat mm-hmm. thing. And it's actually works really well with the 3D because Margo Mill is kind of a tall stack. He kind of sticks up at you. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got our uh, our next pen. We got our pendant from there. And now we head on to the Tower of Hera. And actually, you say that they really save their best stuff for low rule. But I think that the Tower of Hera is one of two dungeons in the game that really stood out at me as being like really the signature dungeons of A Link Hmm. Between Worlds. Um, And maybe you have others that you think are, you know, stand out too, but the Tower of Hera is, it's a tower. It is a tower with many levels. And now that we've got the, all the mobility that we have from the, from the wall merge, we can go outside the tower and see down and Visually, it's like nothing in any of the other Zelda games. Like you, you can be on the ninth level of the tower and have to circle around outside the building and looking down, it's a really long way down. Yeah, they do some really clever uh, things with this. If I remember correctly, there's one where you're on the platform and the platform is moving along the outside edge of the building. And there's just a, like a piece of building jutting out Blocking the blocking the platform, where if you were just to stay on it, that would push you off the platform and you'd fall. Super standard in games, right? And in every other game, you would just jump right over it. And then maybe next time there'd be one that's a little high and you duck. You're constantly moving up and down over these platforms. But what they do, and this is another awesome use of the merge mechanic, is when you hit it, you merge to one side, and then you have to quickly edge around the outside of that part jutting out until you're on the other side and get back onto the platform that you were on and that is such a unique experience and it's simple but it still feels like i've never done that in a game before yeah it's real neat like i i this one this is a better dungeon than the previous two and i i think i agree with you that is one of the one of the better ones um i think that when i was thinking back to this because it has been a few months since i played it i forgot that this dungeon wasn't in in low rule, but you yeah. talking about being on the outside and looking down reminded me. Mm-hmm. This is where I kind of said, oh, wow, this is going to be doing some really interesting new things I haven't seen before. And um, there's some kind of neat stuff in here that's uh, that's uh, really lets you play with these multiple levels because this is a 3D space rather than just a, you know, a tile map of sprites. Um, we can do a lot more of moving between levels and they have things like, for example, these weird... Um, like smiley face plates on the ground that if you hit them, they will make you spring back and upward onto the next level. So there's a lot of times where we can move very quickly from one level of the dungeon to another. And a lot of those levels are like grates. They're, um, you know, you can see through them to the layers below. So uh, 
really excellent uh, use of that vertical space in the tower, which is something that, I mean, there's a there are towers in the other Zelda games, but essentially they're just a series of flat planes. Here, we really feel that it's a big, tall tower. Um, well, like, in a lot of the older games, you enter a new, into a new zone, and those other levels don't really exist anymore for the purposes of what you're doing. Right? In these, there might be a gap where you look down and you see that other level, and you can fall seamlessly down to that next one. Yeah, in the previous so games, ex- the only way to move yeah. between levels would have been stairs or elevators. But here we've got mm-hmm. a ton of other ways to do it. Right, and it all exists. It actually feels like this tower is still there when I'm in one zone. Yeah. Whereas another game, it might be like, okay, but they've loaded this level. Now I am in this one level. Nothing else exists except for this frame. So at the yeah. top, I was super excited to see the boss because um, he's a returning boss from Link to the Past. And a lot of the bosses from Link to the Past make a reappearance here either as they were in that previous game or in kind of a an altered format. Um, but we get Muldorm and... Uh, Muldorm is that giant circular worm thing from Link to the Past. He's basically a bunch of little hamburger buns kind of strung together with a with a gem at his end. <laughs> he, he only looks like hamburger buns now. Like before, he looked like a, just like a cute worm thing. Oh, that's true, this, yeah. This high def, like now he's total hamburger bun. It's because you can see the sesame seeds. Yeah, and, and, the, <laughs> um, you see before. and the lettuce. I mean, he's yeah. got lettuce around the edges. He really looks like a hamburger bun. He's, it's like he's going to trick you into eating way more hamburger than you want by giving you the gem <laughs> and then you're eating like a series of progressively bigger hamburgers Yep. Yeah. until at the end it's just like how am I going to eat this hamburger and get a free meal if it's the size of like the table Yep. Um, but we just <laughs> got to hit him in the butt a lot and then that'll fuck his shit up and uh, we grab the pendant of power um, mm-hmm. easy boss but I was really pleased to see it again and uh, that's it for Hyrule so now that we've got all of the uh all of the pendants, we can finally grab the Master Sword so we can go to the Lost Woods, which are north of Kakariko Village. And it really feels like we're breezing through this stuff. Like at this point, I was like, wow, I can't believe I've already gotten through three dungeons. And it felt like I'd done what what had taken a really long time in Link to the Past and, you know, gotten all these items in in like no time flat. Yeah, it's, it's, it's moving you along quickly because it wants to reveal its hand. Yeah, which is great. And uh, the Lost Woods are a maze. You know, we have to do this kind of weird mini game i didn't like this um there's this kind of thing where you have to where you go into the lost woods and there's these these villainous ghosts that are apparently called pose in the lore um all these things have names i looked them all up it's a waste of time and uh <laughs> and the pose kind of circle around you and then they flit off in different directions and you have to follow like one of them in particular it's like a specific yeah oh yeah and um this took me way longer than it should have because it's randomized each time and for some reason i just couldn't track visually which one it was that i was supposed to be following and i i literally think this took me longer than some of the dungeons like (laughs) it took me a really long time to do this very simple puzzle so i was not a huge fan of this um this is also the first time that i exploited the help system in this game did you guys use the help system at all i did Mm, not no no yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are just better than me. It's adorable. I I really only use it twice, um, but it's it's actually adorable. M- many gamers who are familiar with other Zelda games probably won't ever touch it. But at some point, uh, the fortune teller gives you these these like crazy glasses. They're like you know loony like kooky eye glasses, and if you put them on, um, you see ghosts. And they're adorable little scholarly ghosts, and um, and you can give them play coins for them to give you hints. 
and I love it because it's a help system that unlike something like Navi, it is invisible if you don't want it. You literally <laughs> never have to see it if you don't want it. But if you do decide you want it, it's frankly adorable. Like, the, the, these ghosts are just sort of hanging around in different spots. Um, it's literally the only thing I've ever found to do with play coins on the 3DS. Those are those things that you get if you, uh, you use your 3DS's pedometer and uh, it counts them up as you walk around with your 3DS, which, you know, I, I guess that's fine. Um, <laughs> and you can you can give those coins to the ghosts and they will give you not very cryptic hints about puzzles and things like that. Kind of adorable. I, yeah, I've literally, literally never used a play coin. I didn't even know that they existed. <laughs> And didn't know yeah. about these guys. You didn't. It's, <laughs> I don't think I did either. <laughs> wow, they're super cute. I, I think it's worth looking at just because they're they're cute. Yeah. They're cute as hell. I got the glasses and was like, oh, those will maybe come up at some point. And I remember the witch is like, oh, where'd you get those goggles from? And that was the extent of my use of them. Yeah. So uh, we've got uh, we've gotten past the pose. We've got the master sword. We can finally break through the dark force field around Hyrule Castle, and uh, we climb inside. And uh, the we have to fight our way past a bunch of guards. And on the fifth floor, Yuga is confronting Zelda. And um, at this point, he's already trapped all of the seven sages. In Link to the Past, they were all like it was the seven maidens or something like that. But mm. here it's the sages. And the sages are all of the characters with names, essentially. Um, so every character that we've met up to this point has now been trapped in a painting. And Yuga is carrying them off to low rule for whatever reason. It's so one of the things when I, when I talk about this game as kind of better writing than the other Zelda games mm -hmm. that are similar and that like Link to the Past, the sages are just dudes like and you'd never heard of them up until that point. Yeah. Like you have. And uh, they're Sarah already Strala. dead, right? Like. Yeah, they're just they're just like they're or they're the maidens rather the sages, the, mage, the, the maidens, the maidens are descendants of the sages. <laughs> so, yes. And, and they're just sprites and they just they all tell you some variation of the main story every single time you run into them. But by making the actual characters, the sages being people that you've uh, interacted with, you know, story-wise and mechanically up until this point, mm -hmm. it does a better job of making you care about them. Even if I didn't care that much, I liked these sages more than I liked the maidens and uh, Link to the Past. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind of interesting. Some of them didn't know that they were sages until this moment. One of them, I think, was like, I always thought that maybe I was. I felt something special, but wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a moment of realization for everybody. Yeah. Um, or Osfala, mm -hmm. the uh, the apprentice to Shrahashraha, um, he's uh, he's kind of jealous of you because he thinks, oh, I thought maybe I was the hero of time, but now it turns out I'm just a sage. Well, I guess yeah, that's yeah. fine. It's a dang sage. It's kind of neat. I, I agree. It's really a, it's a big improvement over the nameless... Uh, non-character, you know, damsels that we had to rescue in the previous game. Mm. Yeah. So we are nearly there. We have nearly gotten through to low rule, which is where the game really opens up and we can stop talking about quote unquote plot. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's just a few more steps for us to make our way through. Um, we chase Yuga into a boss room. Uh, every castle has to have one. And uh, he splits into three and kind of merges with the walls and he casts these cool lightning bolts, and basically we just have to hit him a whole bunch. He's a really easy boss. But um, once we've finally done that, he runs out into the office of the castle. Where they send their emails and stuff from. Yeah, like we, 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 <laughs> we've seen the inside of Hyrule Castle once or twice, but it was always a throne room and a bunch of hallways. 
And now we have an office. And I so I found something hilarious about like, oh, here's where Zelda writes letters to her friends. <laughs> That's her work. Was it a standing desk or was it a sitting desk? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, a very, very old school desk. She's uh, but she's very tidy. It's a very nice office. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But on the back wall, there's a tapestry, which we can tear down. And there's a crack in the wall. And if we slide through that crack in painting mode, then we get into low rule. Mm hmm. Yeah, which is the the kind of the the thing where up until this point, Hyrule was Hyrule. Like this was took place in the same place and the geography is the same. But low rule is really different than the dark world. Um, like some things are in generally in the same place, but there's a lot of things built to kind of subvert those expectations. Um, and low rule is not just the dark side of Hyrule. Like it has its own story and its own uh, people. And, and I don't want to say its own lore, but I <laughs> guess that's what I mean. Um but it has its own, like, there's a there's a concept to low rule. It is more thematically and emotionally resonant than the Dark World was. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily evil high rule. Exactly. Which is kind of like what Dark World is. This is just another existence of high rule. Yeah, it's inverse. Did you guys appreciate the, the low, all the low puns? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I will never begrudge a game a good pun, so I'm fine yeah. with low rule. But yeah, I agree. It's It's much more interesting than the Dark World. I think that... In that game, they were really limited by the fact that they were, it was a hack to get two worlds into that game at all. I mean, that game was literally doing like a, a palette swap on Hyrule with some slight variations. It was kind of a layer over top of Hyrule to give you this alternate world, where here they were able to actually do a totally separate model and it has different geography. And a really interesting thing about, about Low Rule is that you can really tell it's falling apart. Um, there are huge cracks in the ground that separate low rule into many distinct regions that you can't get from one to the other. Um, you have to go through high rule. So, uh, you have to traverse, you know, to different areas and cross into low rule through different cracks that you discover throughout the game. Yeah. So this is where the game really opens up and low rule has a ton of dungeons in it and you can do them in essentially any order because we get this cool, uh, rental mechanic we can grab the items we need and dive right in and do whichever dungeons we want. So I kind of put them on our notes here in an order that seems sensible, um, but you can do them absolutely any order. And uh, the first one we might talk about here would be the Thieves Hideout, which most of the dungeons have no real plot to them. There's some actual things that happen in the Thieves Hideout. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of neat. We, uh, we get to explore Thieves Town again, which is the inverse of Kakariko Village. And uh, there's a thief girl uh, trapped in the dungeon. In the previous game, we had to lead a, uh, a a maiden or something out, right? She was one. It was like a. It was a fake. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was supposed to be the uh, the maiden that, and it turned out we had to lead her into an area where she was exposed to sunlight. Yeah. And uh, turned into the boss. Yeah. <laughs> Which was cool, but. It, I was really hoping for more with this. When I saw the thief girl, I loved her character design. She's this kind of tough girl with pink hair and, and you know, thief clothes, I guess, whatever that means. But um, the, and she's trapped in a cell. We have to spring her and help her escape. But she doesn't really... Like, I was really hoping for something more there. But I don't know. We just escort her out of the dungeon. I think it's hard for games like these to have a, a good... AI sidekick. Yeah. You know, because um, you might do it in any order and things like that where she just follows you. Yeah. Despite the fact that she's a thief who presumably has thief skills, her primary skill here is standing on buttons. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> and we uh, we get some cool enemies that I love. I love the Igors. They're one of my favorite enemies from Link to the Past. So I was glad to see them again here. They're the little robot dudes with a gigantic eye up front. 
and mm-hmm. uh, they will. Residents. Yeah, yeah. They will walk straight towards you and then close their eye and stop for a while, that kind of thing. Um, the boss of this dungeon was Stallblind, and. Um, yeah, I, I love this guy. Yeah, me too. This, you know, this is a really cool integration of your exploration mechanics with your battle mechanics. Um, this kind of ghost guy that you have to uh, get on his shield. Um, and just it relies on you noticing that his shield is flat and kind of thinking like, oh, I wonder if I can merge with that. Yeah, they were smart enough to put a whole bunch of versions of that shield at different places in the dungeon beforehand, just lying mm-hmm. around. So you could easily realize, oh, hey, I can merge with this thing. And there's one point where you have to because you have to merge with it uh, with, with a shield that's attached to a moving arm to get across a, uh, a gap. So we know yeah. by this point that we can merge with it. Now we have to realize oh, that's our way to get behind Stallblind and hit him in the back, um, yeah. which is his weak spot. They do they do a really, really good job in this game of the dungeon slowly teaching you the mechanics without telling you the mechanics of how a boss might work or how a particular room might work. Mm-hmm. And that's like such a good example is the shield showing up earlier that you learn you can merge to it. And then there he is. The boss has that same shield. Yeah, fun dungeon. Nothing really great about the architecture of the dungeon, but uh, great boss. Really exciting boss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. At the end, we rescue uh, Osfala. He's the first of the sages that we would rescue, um, and uh, he gives us the sand rod, uh, which he had borrowed from Ravio. Um, uh, turns out, though, he only rented it from Ravio. So you know, although we get this cool new item. It goes back to Ravio, the same as all the others. But now we have access to that, which gives us access to the Desert Palace, which is a, probably our next dungeon. He's like, I have a gift for you. Oh, wait, well, kind of. You have to go rent it from this guy if you want it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a license to, to buy it. <laughs> yeah, not only does he yeah. give it to us and then tell us, oh, actually, it's it's rented. The bird comes in and grabs it as soon as we get out of the yep. dungeon. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got the sand rod. Um we can now head towards the Desert Palace, and uh, the Desert Palace is another really neat dungeon. There's a lot of uh, um, a lot of great uses of the uh, of the wall merge mechanic here. Uh, nothing really stands out as as particularly unique to this dungeon, uh, except it's got some pretty good uh, returning enemies from Link to the Past, like the Flamola. Those are those flame scorpion things. Mm-hmm. Um, getting, getting into this dungeon is a real trial too. Oh yeah. Like I remember that being a real tricky series of puzzles, kind of navigating and figuring out how to get in the proper space in low rule, um, by kind of utilizing the portals and, and worlds and switching back and forth. Yeah. And actually it was probably harder to get into the dungeon than it was to complete it, um, yeah. which is a, a, the case with two or three of these dungeons. Actually, another one would be, um, later in the game, the next to last dungeon, uh, really, really hard to get to. Yeah. And I kind of like that about the game. It, it forces that exploration. You are just jumping dungeon to dungeon, but it's not easy to, to entirely traverse this world. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that. It you you just see a little X on the on the on the map, and it's like, okay, that's where the entrance to the dungeon is. But yeah, I'm how do I get all, there? Yeah, I'm all the way over here. I like having that goalpost. Uh, it's not exactly like a quest marker where maybe like you know, lines along the floor will lead you there, but at least you have a general idea of where you're trying to get to. And I thought that was really successful. Yeah. Uh, and for the first time, like our, our, our map is actually pretty useful in game. Like you've got it on your second screen. You don't have to toggle to a special mode. It shows oh, Link's yeah. current location. Um, it, it, you, it shows the location of 
things like the cracks between low rule and high rule as little icons on the map to help you get back to them easily. Yeah. Uh, you can drop up to 20 pins on the map, which I thought was really neat because if I saw, for example, like a Mai Mai that I knew I wanted to get but didn't have time to get right now, I could drop a pin on the map and go back to it later. So yeah. you can even color code the pins. I mean, it's like they really had some usability ideas here in mind to make this really simple and easy to use. Yeah, I dropped pins anywhere I found a, uh, a fairy fountain. Yeah. So I could know, like, there's one just south of your house that was kind of like my go-to fairy hunt, <laughs> you know, my fairy hunting ground. But uh, it was good to know where your nearest fairy so you could go and chomp some more of them and trap them in bottles. And Yep. Our boss at the end of uh, the Desert Palace is Zaganaga another great name and uh, this is a really great boss like you're stand so you're in a pit of quicksand and there's a bunch of pillars in it you can only stand on the top of those pillars but because the sand rod creates these sort of pillars of sand you can use it to create these walkways that are temporary between different pillars and uh, Zaganaga is um, shooting beams and hitting different spots and you have to create your own walkways as you go to get to places where you can hit him and then to evade him. I actually had kind of a hard time with this one. This was, I think, the first one where I, um, and this would happen again later on, but this was the first one where I actually died and had to come back and do it again. Yeah, I died a bunch on this one, I think, actually. But I, it was fun. I thought, you know, we kind of undersold that mechanic uh, leading into this, but the the fact that if you're standing on sand and use the sand rod it builds like three or four pillars of sand in front of you they do some kind of cool stuff with that where like a ball a spike ball is rolling out of a chute and you have to run like right beneath it building sand pillars to lead it all the way across until it'll hit a wall and break it or something like that i thought that was really fun that was another use of depth that this game does really well where you're underneath a platform but affecting the things above you yeah. on the platform that was cool uh, but the bo yeah this boss was tricky yeah. um once we've beaten it we save our next uh sage that's irene the apprentice witch um uh kind of a weird thing for the entire rest of the game um normally she gives you a lift around on her broom but for the entire rest of the game because she's trapped in the little palace of the sages um her broom flies around but she's not on it which is kind of weird um, I'm kind of surprised they decided to make her a sage that way because you use that that uh, travel mechanic so frequently and she only shows up on her broom very, very early in the game. Seemed kind of kind of weird, but anyway. Um, yeah, I think I did the, uh, the Desert Palace maybe fourth or fifth. So it was just a broom for a really long time before I figured out what she was. <laughs> and they kind of led it up to be like it was going to be this big mystery because once she's gone... The broom shows up, but it's like all question marks, and you know, instead of speaking. Uh, and I actually wish I would have done the Desert Palace last because uh, once you get later in the game and you're traveling around a lot, she'll have like four or five lines of dialogue every time you're going to pick her up or she picks you up. And it would have been nicer just to be those question marks. Yep, she was a little annoying. Um, moving on through, we got the Swamp Palace. Uh, this one, you have to do that super bomb thing. You have to pick the giant uh, bomb flower and lead it to the to the. Uh, to the boulder in order to get in. Uh, and then once you're inside, there's a lot of really neat bits with uh, with rafts that you have to use the hookshot to kind of move your raft around. Um, I really liked this dungeon. Uh, it had a lot of convincingly deep uh, 3D spaces. And a lot of those were places where we had to fill spaces with water. 
And there were things that in Link to the Past where they had to play with filling, you know, filling moats or things like that. But it was usually just about being able to swim through it or something. It never actually played into the way that the dungeon was structured. Here, you know, filling things up, uh, there were sometimes several levels that the water could be at, and that was a part of the puzzles. The, uh, yeah, because, well, the first one, there's just one... There in in uh, Link to the Past, you just have to fill water to get into the dungeon mm-hmm. and change its state. Here, it like manages to do something that games don't do, where they make a water changing puzzle work. Yeah, because um, those are the worst. <laughs> they always like, those, are. Those are literally the worst, and uh, and this actually works pretty well. I still don't think it's great, um, which was kind of a bummer because I love the water dungeon from uh, Link to the Past, mm-hmm. partly because of this boss. Um, which is uh, Argus Argus, uh, <laughs> who is a ridiculous, like it is a really spooky boss. This like gigantic eye octopus surrounded by tiny floating eyes. It's like something yeah. from Bloodborne. Well, it's like perfectly <laughs> kind of gross too. It, yeah, he's it's like he's ugh, it's a little squeamish. I love the way that you attack him though. Like you use the hook shot yeah. to grab his little floating eyes and the floating eyes are kind of hovering in spheres of water. But when you grab them, their water sort of drops away from them and you can poke them in the eye. And that's super satisfying to do. I loved fighting this boss. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they bring it back later, which is nice. But like, I love this dungeon, but that's because I love the hook shot. Yeah. And I will forever love anything that involves the hook shot. Yeah. This is a hook shot heavy dungeon. Hook shot is sweet. Yeah. I think if I, like, I don't think this is easy to answer, but my gut call on, like, what's the one link tool that you want in real life? And I think I would almost go with the hook Master shot. Master sword. So, well, I know, and that's, <laughs> not, like, you can make an argument for anything. You're, like, you're going think... to break your jaw, but Like, you're, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to be, like, whip yourself onto a roof oh, and then just smash your face I do in. not have the physical agility, dexterity, or strength to manage a hook You are shot. not Batman. No, but that would be so much fun. It's when people talk about my wrist, wanting the portal gun, and then forgetting that the other magic item she has is the things that stop her from the long pole boots, yeah, cracking her uh, shins when she lands. Um, They really come as a set. I'd be dead within the first like twenty-five minutes of hook shotting. I don't don't know about you guys. I someday I'd really like to own a jar. So if I could somehow make that happen. Hey man, if we're talking about like valuable Zelda items, uh, the jar might or the bottle might be the most valuable. You guys are all crazy. So I'll take the enormous rubies that he finds yeah. everywhere. Yeah. That's that's fine that's by point. me. So our yeah. next dungeon is probably depending on the order that you're going through. Once again, you can play these in any order, which is still fantastic. But uh, the next one in my notes is the Skull Woods. Um, mm-hmm. There's a really similar location in Link to the Past. Um, And even the layout of this dungeon was like full of, like more than some of the other dungeons. The the layout of this dungeon seemed to be really referencing the similar dungeon in Link to the Past. Um, In Link to the Past, my favorite dungeon uh, was the one in the woods where you kind of had, it's actually several dungeons that are kind of linked. So you have to constantly go back to the overworld and do things like um, fall through holes to back down into the dungeon in a different area or open multiple entrances to the dungeon, which isn't something that most of the other dungeons do. Um, the Skullwoods here does the exact same thing. And uh, also returning is my absolute, it's probably not for very good reasons, but my favorite uh, enemy from Link to the Past also returns here. And that's the Wallmaster. The Wallmaster is the giant sort of zombie-ish looking grabby hand that hovers around the ceiling, kind of hovers hands and circles you until finally drops down and grabs you. And it doesn't hurt you, it just drops you back at the entrance of the dungeon. I'd rather die. 
Every time I get hit, every time I get hit by the wall masters, it's like so. It's not. I'm not mad. I'm not. It's just disappointing. Yeah. Because it's it's like they purposely set it up where there are times that it's really hard to avoid him. But for the most part, if you're just running in circles, you can make him whiff, and then it only takes two sword swipes to kill him. So most of the time, he's not a big deal. But if you're just like, I don't know, man, I'm all, I, I'm playing and I get a text message or something and I look down at it and then I look back at the DS and I'm being grabbed by the wall mask. Yep. It's like, I, it's, I, cause I know it's my fault. Yeah. It's always your fault. So it's like, oh, I forgot to keep moving for a, a <laughs> damn second. Well, this is, usually, so in the past, Wallmasters um, are just there to make you keep moving, like yeah. you said. Here, though, because it's 3D, they have those, like, grates. Yeah. And that becomes a huge part of the puzzle is using Wallmasters to do things for you by making them smash these grates. Um, you know, like, tricking them into trying to hit you but not being able to do so. Yeah. That was um, where I was, very, like, very cool. I mean, that, that was delightful. That was, like amazing because I was like these guys are from Link to the Past I know exactly how they operate I know what they're going to do but now there's something to do other than just trick them into you know being able to kill them like I loved those moments mm -hmm. where you, you couldn't smash something but the wall master could and you could trick it into smashing it for you or hitting buttons for you or hitting other yeah. enemies for you all of those were possible and were super fun to do it all it actually makes it a negative to kill the wall master. Yeah, because then you have to wait for him to respawn exactly. for like two minutes. Yeah. 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 It's not that long, but it's in in the world of the game, it feels like it's a while. And so uh, I would kill him because, you know, that's what I want to do. And then I'd enter into the next spot. It's like, oh, well, now I got to wait for him to smash this button for yeah. me. Yeah. And they're tricky. Like, there's one part I remember specifically where you have to carry these giant eyeballs that are kind of a key item. You have to carry two of them to these eye sockets in the floor and you have to dump them there. And because when you're carrying it, you're carrying it over your head in the typical Zelda style, like somebody really needs to teach this guy like to lift with his, <laughs> with his with back. His back. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he's, you know, he's carrying these gigantic eyeballs over his head and walking very slowly. And when you have to avoid the wall master, that becomes a real liability. So you have to constantly drop the thing and get out of the way, go back, grab the eye. It's a, it's a tricky moment. And I had a ton of fun in this dungeon because mm -hmm. of it. I really like it. Like yeah, it's like the key in uh, Mario 2. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They do some cool things with this dungeon too, with the depth, where it's like it's all right underground, and there are various spots where you'll go back above ground and you'll unearth a few holes that drop you back into the dungeon. But some of them are the are the right place to fall, some of them are not. So you're like going back up above ground and trying to kind of think of like where is this hole relative to the dungeon that's right below me? So you know which is the right one to fall down. Yep. I thought that was another really good use of space. Yep, awesome stuff. Yeah. Um, the boss in this area is the Knuckle Master, a kind of a bigger version of the Wall Master with armor on and a gigantic eyeball in his palm. Um, I, I think that it, they really just like to put giant eyeballs on bosses. Well, it's yeah. such it's an obvious, like, think of yourself and where do you not want to get hit most and there's Balls? like a, well i was gonna say there's like two spots. i don't think they would have wanted to one, put a scrotum hanging from the bottom go, yeah, giant the like so like they, like truck nuts for hyrule Good yeah. God. Like, so you yeah. so you you take that out and what's number two 
Like your <laughs> yeah, eyes. Yeah, probably so. Especially when someone has a giant sword. Yeah. Like, oh, that is terrifying. Yep. So we, uh, he's pretty easy to beat. You kind of have to Toro him into hitting the walls because he does this flying punch and then you hit him in the eye and very obvious. And there we go. This is one that I actually had a, 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 a moment of trouble with only because for whatever reason, I forgot, not, not forgot, but I forgot about the utility of the wall merging thing. Yeah. And I kept trying to dodge his mm. like bull charge punch and I could not do it. It was driving me crazy. I even started doing this like basically he'll like the ground can all be blown up by bombs or if he tries to smack you and hits one of those, the floor drops out. So I had this silly thing where I would have him shoot at me, but I would jump off the edge which would take a half a heart, but respawn me back where his upside down body was. And I would slash him with the sword. And I was like, this is, there's no way this, never is, gonna how, this, this is not how this is happen, supposed yeah. to work. And then finally I like merged on the wall on accident. I was like, I'm oh, a yeah. dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and I got him, I think without losing a heart once I figured that out, because I gotten so good at like trying to dodge mm-hmm. him. That between that and remembering that I could merge, it became a super easy boss. But it's just like that extra mechanic that feels really seamless, but it is still new to Zelda. And so I so used to like the the only way to kill a boss is to dodge perfectly and then swipe. Yeah. And sure, merging to the wall is a type of dodge, but I just I for whatever reason didn't consider it. Well, you're a dummy. Um <laughs> Well, no Pegasus boots. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we uh, we rescue Ceres. That's the uh, the first person we saw abducted, and now we're on to our next dungeon, um, the Dark Palace. It's the dark version of the Hyrule Palace, and uh, it's pretty tricky to get to because it's guarded by soldiers, and they have these weird vision beam things. Like basically, you can see their their field of vision, and if they see you, they will grab you and put you into jail. Um, it's very easy to get out of jail, but it's kind of like the Wallmasters in that it's really frustrating because it sets you back to the beginning again. So it's very tricky to get to the actual, you know, dungeon here. And it's kind of like uh, the Zelda version of a stealth game here. It's kind of a weird segment. Yeah. Well, it's mm-hmm. not entirely new. I mean, I was thinking of uh, the Gerudo Valley stuff from Ocarina of the Ocarina of, of Time. The time yeah. Of the Ocarina <laughs> of the Time. Uh, you know, where you're you're job is to avoid enemies and it's a nice little change of pace yeah um i like that to kind of explain why they don't spot the fact that you are um you know a a moving painting walking around on the walls there's actually vines growing on all of these walls so you can merge with the wall and you are on the wall but behind the vines so you're invisible um, and they don't hear the, <laughs> the noise that you make when you go across the apparently wall. Apparently not. Um, <laughs> a lot of bombs in this dungeon, which is always fun. Throwing bombs is really fun and, and uh, using them to hit switches and things like that. I really enjoyed um, this this level. But once you get into it, it's, it's pretty small. Um, but it does do one thing that I thought was absolutely, like, super cool and something that they could not possibly have done in Link to the Past. And that's those invisible walkways. Yeah, because they had invisible walkways in Link to the Past, but they were lame. Yeah. Like you just, you'd use the ether spell and they'd appear for a moment. Um, but here it, it's much more subtle and, and visually impressive. Yeah, they look really cool. Like you have, there has to be moonlight shining on them. And when the moonlight mm-hmm. shines on them when, and, and isn't overpowered by torches, so you usually have to put out all the torches in the room, um, then you see these glowing, you know, moonlit walkways. But 
if you're walking near them, your torchlight overpowers that, and so you you don't see the the walkways nearby. Um, it, it, it's really cool looking, but it's also really unsettling because on those areas you see down with the depth into you know you see you're walking above an incredibly deep pit, and uh, and the depth really does a great job of kind of conveying that here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it. it it becomes a little bit of memorization sometimes, which a lot of these games don't generally have. You, you'll put out the torch, see the, you know, see the walkway that you have to do. But for whatever reason, you need to relight that torch. You have to just like walk along a, a depth and make the right turns and walk the right ways. Otherwise, you fall and lose half a heart. So the boss here is Gemasaur King, which is like the Helmosaur from Link to the Past. Basically, you have to bomb his head until his like um, skull shield thing pops off and hit him in the in the brain gem thing. Um, very similar to the the boss from Link to the Past, but um, here he periodically puts out the lights and he's invincible mm. in the dark. So you have to go around relighting uh, torches a whole bunch and uh, trying to avoid him in pitch blackness. It's pretty neat. Um, and we save Gully, who he's just the worst. Yeah, but luckily you don't <laughs> yeah. have to talk to him if you don't want to. Like <laughs> yeah. you do this little area where you can visit the the sages. Um, and they're, they're, you know, negative zone prison that they're in. And it's <laughs> yeah. up to you whether you want to actually it's, talk to them. You it's got to be if, awful to be a sage. Yeah. They're just like, we're chilling here. Yeah, Not sure. If, <laughs> waiting for adventure. And there's no chairs. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. screw you. Know, you. Uh, with the Dark Palace, I was really expecting to not like it. Um, I don't generally like parts of video games where like an element is that you can't see where you're going. And it's like, figure out how to see where you're going. <laughs> um but I thought that they did a really good job with this. Uh, the torches are are uh, they're enough. Like you can light them if you need to get, get your bearings enough mm-hmm. again. And I, I wasn't constantly just like falling nonstop or running into stuff nonstop. Like I thought it was handled really well. Like it wasn't too dark. Yeah, you know, it was. It was okay. Palace. This was probably my least favorite dungeon in the game, and it's. There, yeah. there were a few things in it that were just really frustrating. Like, for example, there's a, a there's a room in which there's a bunch of these rather than invisible uh, walkways, they're invisible walls, and you have to merge with them and basically get through a maze of invisible walls. And um, it is kind of neat in that you are merging with walls that are invisible, which is something that you haven't seen before. But um, it's really hard to get through, like really hard. And there's actual enemies in this area too. So you're having to fight them while navigating through this invisible maze. I, I was pretty frustrated by it. Yeah. Unfortunately, the next one was kind of fun. Um, Turtle Rock. <laughs> this is the one that I tried to do first. Oh, it's hard. Yeah, the enemies yeah, do a lot. The enemies do a lot of damage. And this was the only one where I started, made it about halfway through. Um, even so much that I made it to like the checkpoint, if you will, where you kind of open up the little portal that'll send you back to the opening gate. Made it that far and was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and and stopped. and Because I did it, it was literally the first one I tried. But I think I had five hearts when I was doing it. And like a single touch from a lava monster will be like one full heart. Mm-hmm. And I had like one bottle and five hearts. And I just died my way through this dungeon and it finally was like you know what i'm gonna go and find a different one yeah. because i don't think i like yeah i can do it right now but i don't think i'm supposed to and it i didn't do it until it was like i think i did it like 
maybe fifth or sixth. Yeah, it was way. And late I came for back. Me. Yeah, I came back with like twelve hearts and three bottles. And fortunately, I'd already done like half of it, so it, it was really easy to kind of jump back in and finish it off. But uh, and I, I think that's cool. I'm fine with that. Like. I didn't. I didn't leave it being like this is bullshit that I can't finish it. <laughs> like I thought it was cool that I had the chance to try it, and had I had like more willpower to just keep dying my way through, I think I probably could have finished it. But I, I, I'm fine with it. At least I had the option. Yeah. You know. You know, I really enjoyed getting to Turtle Rock because you have to do this cute thing where you save a couple of giant turtles and then they all stack <laughs> up and kind of provide before a you murder a bunch of turtles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Murdering turtles. It's like the. <laughs> It's super important in video game culture. We're, you know, very against turtles. Yeah. There's yeah. treasure inside them. Yeah, exactly. So that's why you do it. <laughs> of course Everyone there is. Um, so uh, also <laughs> fuck whiz robes. And um, then we get to the uh, the boss, which is Grinex. And it's similar to the Trinex. The, head, the name made sense when it was the Trinex with three heads. But here it's just a grimy turtle. Um, and we have to kill that grimy turtle. Uh, above a pit full of lava. I kind of enjoyed this one because he's shooting these lava jets up at you through these grates, um, and you have to drop ice on him using the ice rod, uh, and if you don't have the ice rod by this point, God help you. Um, uh, I don't think you can. I think the, the way you, this is one of those ones we were talking about earlier, uh, to get into it, you have to ice rod a lava oh, spout yeah, that's right. to yeah. merge to the wall to get into the dungeon. Yeah. So like, they won't let you do this dungeon without the ice rod. Yeah, he's a turtle boss. That's pretty much all there is to it. He's uh, he's a turtle. He's your boss. The turtle boss. And is your everyday normal turtle yep. boss. And uh, and we save Impa the sage and move on to our next level, and that would be the ice ruins. The ice ruins is probably my favorite dungeon in the game. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but first off, getting to it is awesome. Uh, so we have to get through it to it through Rosso's Ore Mine, which is that area in the uh, like Mount Doom or whatever it's called, uh, Death Mountain, um, Death that Mountain. you mentioned earlier. It's where there's all, there's all those really long falls you have to take from one moving platform to another that are all in 3D. And uh, I didn't see that until this point in the game, very late. Um, so getting to that was amazing. You have to go through that. It's near the Tower of Hera and... It's it's very tricky because you're dropping this very long distance, but because we're seeing that in 3D, if you've got 3D turned on, it's it's very exhilarating. Yep. Yeah. I actually got lucky on this one. I had a really hard time with it and then fell all the way down and um, actually landed like skipping two of the platforms and landed on one at the very bottom. It was like, well, I just cheated. Let's keep going. Yeah, it's actually great. If, you, if you're very skillful at that dropping thing, you can skip past a pretty large chunk there. Um, once we get into the ice ruins, uh, it's got the most... Ex it's, it seems like it's probably the largest uh, dungeon in the game, and it's got the most sort of moving stuff. So we've got a central elevator right from the very start. You can get, you can walk right in the door, get on the elevator, and go through every single floor all the way to the very bottom, and grab the boss key, which is something that I'd never seen because, like, you, usually the boss key is the very last thing you get. But here, you can get the boss key within the first seconds of walking in the door. But then you have to explore this much larger dungeon that's full of multi-level areas where you're on moving platforms, moving above other moving platforms, and it requires a lot of jumping from the top to the bottom and then riding the elevator back up uh, in order to activate switches and move around, and it's a 
it's the best showcase of the 3D aspect of this game that I can think of. It feels like a final dungeon. Yeah. Like it feels like it's not, but it, it's not the final dungeon, but it feels like it. It's the most complicated one that you're you're working with. And uh, it's a huge like meat wall. Like going here first is a mistake, um, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Nate, just uh, because they, you know these creatures do a lot of damage. Uh, when you're here and I would always rather have that be the thing that turns me away rather than like a sign or a wall. Um, just let me figure it out on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up doing this, like we've been going through the order of these, like I did these dungeons in a different order than, than you did. Um, but this one I did last out of necessity, um, which was really, really cool. And it feels like a thesis statement for the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, just like it, it is using the idea, like this is more of a tower than, than the tower of Hera. Like this is more of a vertical space. Um, than that is and uh yeah it's just it's really really it's very dense too um you, you kind of just kind of go through these ever widening uh you know gyrations from from the area you know to kind of like unlock new areas through these different like uh moving platform things and it's like okay you know i just have to keep trying things and trying getting on walls at certain points until you can explore a little bit more they'll let you get to a little bit further it's really satisfying yeah it's super satisfying and there's a lot of times where there are switches that you'll hit where you don't see exactly what the result is but then very shortly after that you'll get to a place where you have perspective on the entire dungeon yeah if you're on a lot of the top levels of the dungeon you can see a lot at once and being able to go up and kind of get that bird's eye view again and see exactly what you did really helps kind of move you through it this is one of the only dungeons where i really got stuck too and uh and it eventually it wouldn't wind up to be a certain fall that i hadn't made um but I, yeah it, i this was the hardest and probably the most fun dungeon mm-hmm. i think it's also got my favorite uh mini bosses in the game and that's the pengators i mean oh, yeah God. they lit me up man the pengators were amazing in uh, link to the past and the the 3D models of them here are just as great as the sprites in Link to the Past. They are gigantic green penguins with alligator teeth and spines coming out of their heads, and they are awesome. I love the pengators. I I literally died trying to fight some of these. I I don't know what it was. It was like this. I I will, it will forever kind of be bad at ice levels. Mm-hmm. Well, they <laughs> slide around I, yeah, on their bellies. I don't know. So. I don't know if there's anyone who's like I'm good at ice levels, but I know that I'm bad at ice levels, and I'm just sliding around. And there's one part where it's like a big pin gator and like five little baby pin gators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that might be in this yeah. dungeon. So that's that might this be room. in the final Screw repro- that. Screw, yeah. that, to- Screw that completely. <laughs> I was just wailing with my fire rod, just trying to light up these little baby pin gators. And I had, I think I burned through two fairies and two blue potions just killing these pin gators. Yeah, they're Brutal. very tough. <laughs> Our last boss here is Cold Stare. That's with a K, so you know it's metal. And um, he is basically a gigantic ball of black hair with another eyeball. Um, Eyeballs are like super evil in Zelda. And uh, so he's got this kind of weird triangle beam. He'll like spew out a couple of little gem looking things and then it creates this triangle between him and the two gems and you don't want to be in that triangle. So, um, which isn't so hard, except that you're on ice and usually changing direction is very tricky. So it's a pretty fun boss. Um, you just start to have to hit him a whole bunch with the fire uh, fire rod, but uh, this was 
probably the hardest boss for me in the game, mostly because it was done on ice and changing direction to dodge is like almost impossible. And I don't yeah. think, I, I don't remember exactly how the room was laid out, but I don't think there was anywhere to merge with the walls to get away from him either. Yeah. It's tough. It's really kind of you want to have enough uh, jars and enough uh, to be able to kind of muscle through it. And an upgraded fire rod yeah, and will it, help a lot as well. It really helps that the um, the fairies in this, you know, if you uh, uh, if you die and then use a fairy to, like, revive, it doesn't count as a death as far as losing your rented items is counted. Oh, yeah. Um, so you, uh, you want to go into this one with a bunch of fairies and bottles if you can. Mm-hmm. We're basically done at this point, guys. We've got, we've beaten all of the low rule dungeons, but, um, and, and now we've, we've saved our final sage, which is the uh, the miner guy. I forget his name. Anyway, Rosu, uh, Rosu, Rosso, the miner. We've saved him and we've now saved all of the, uh, uh, all of the sages and they give us one third of the Triforce, the Triforce of Courage. Um, mm-hmm. But the other two are in the hands of, now we've gotten through this entire, because we've been, you know, shitting on the lore, uh, we got through this entire time without talking about Hilda of Low Rule. Um, yes, which is actually kind of interesting. Like uh, Hilda is the inverse of uh, of Zelda, and she seems like a good guy. She's you know she wears a lot of purple eyeliner and dark clothing, so you get the sense that maybe she's evil. But you know she's generally been helpful. Uh, every time you mm-hmm. warp into low rule, she tells you a little bit about the area you're headed for and tries to be helpful in helping you, you know, um, save the sages or whatever. So, you know, she's nominally our ally. And um, uh, as the sort of inverse of Zelda, she's, uh, you know, she's got one part of the Triforce, as does Yuga, who stole it at some point. I'm not exactly clear on the details here. Anyway, we now have to run to low rule castle to, you know, with our piece of the Triforce that we've got to try to rescue Zelda herself. And um, Low Rule is kind of our final dungeon of the game, or Low Rule Castles, kind of the final dungeon of the game. It's a bit of a grab bag. It reintroduces a lot of stuff that we've seen throughout the game. Um, yeah, that's what you want from a final dungeon. You want it to kind of be the, like, the greatest hits of the game uh, up to that mm-hmm. point. Um, yeah, I thought they did a good job with it. It was fun, a little reprise. Let me use let me use my hook shot again. Yeah, um, some of the stuff that cropped back up. Uh, we've got a central room, kind of like the ice palace and the Tower of Hera, with uh, with like an elevator. Um, there's lava. Uh, it's got the invisible pathways thing again. Uh, even the super bomb, the bomb flower, makes a reappearance, and uh, the wall master is back. So basically, everything that was awesome in any of the other dungeons makes a reappearance here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they do a really good job of pulling out these things that were particularly fun about the uh, the rest of the dungeons and, and giving you really quick little tastes. Yeah, you have to imagine this was the last thing they did after playtesting a bunch of other stuff and getting a sense of what was fun. Um, also, there are four uh, sort of mini bosses that you have to fight again. Uh, Gigabari, which is a giant bari. The baris are those things like the electric things that are like little spheres with little tentacles that float around and spark you. Um, there's one of those that's gigantic. Uh, Muldorm is back, only this time he is uh, purple and in a room that gets narrower as you fight him, which is awesome because Muldorm was always just about avoiding him uh, and now kind of reprising that same fight with the same enemy, but in a room that gets smaller the longer you fight really raises the stakes. And there's like a ball and chain soldier guy and another Argus. 
So hi, Argus. Argus, Argus. <laughs> He's back. Um, and then you know, at the end, you, you fight this. Uh, you fight Yuga slash Ganon because Yuga summons Ganon. Yeah, it, right? I'm not at all clear on this. Um, I don't remember. It's been they a never so. Let me reference yeah, okay. my copy of Hyrule Historia here. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. They never actually say Ganon in this, as far as I. Yeah, you know, think. I guess but, they don't. But he looks. I mean, he's Ganon. Like he he looks like him. But they say Yuga the whole time, so I didn't know if that was like Yuga is just like the low rule word for Ganon yeah. or something like that. But but it looks like well, it. Well, um, another thing to consider is that Ganon was destroyed at the end of Link to the Past 2, and, you know, obviously, because of the continuity, he can't be back it in the sequel. Um, he just keeps getting reborn, man. <laughs> well, it's, it is, it's, this is six generations later, yeah. okay? Yeah, lots of generations. This, this yeah. fight is great. This, I think this, this boss fight is one of my favorite boss fights in the game. Yeah, it um, feels like a really great idea that they held off on until the very last minute. Well, it's it's well, yeah, exactly. Well, because they need they spent the whole game showing you how powerful and cool it was to be able to go into walls, and showed you all the tricks you can do with it, and then you fight a boss that can do the same thing. Yeah, um, which is really satisfying, and that's that's been that's a reflection on the Dark League fight that is a Zelda mainstay. Um, you fighting somebody with your move set is a Zelda trope, and uh, here it is done really really well because it's not just a duel with like Zelda's fighting mechanics, which are not, you know, it's not by Bayonetta. Like it's not meant to be yeah. a really deep combat system. Um, so all of those dark Link fights in the past always felt a little bit hollow to me. This one, it manages to do a Zelda fight while making you fight like a dark reflection of yourself and still have it make it feel like a regular Zelda fight. Yeah, and the the final moment is really the coolest. You're, you're, uh, you're fighting uh, Yuga, who has transformed into a giant pig Ganon's form, and uh, and he's constantly merging with the walls to get away from you. And Zelda gives you a special bow that's a new item you haven't had previously in the game, and it's a bow that you can fire while you're in the wall, um, which wouldn't really have been useful anywhere else in the game, except here it does something really cool. We're in a round room with no door, and because of the way that we're, you know, when you're merged into that wall, because it's a circular room, uh, firing a an arrow in either direction will hit uh, Yuga, depending on, you know, if you fire it towards him, then it'll hit him. But if you fire it back away from him, it'll loop around and hit him in the back. And we have to use that in order to first stun him with an arrow in the face and then hit him with an arrow in the back, which forces him out of the wall. And you have to do that repeatedly. And there's some other stages here. He fires some lasers at you some balls that kind of thing but uh that moment birds birds, yeah yeah the birds (laughs) but that moment of of shooting the arrow backwards to loop around the wall and hit him in the back it was awesome it's such a cool moment and it 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 really gives you some love in that moment with the camera like the camera will flit away from you and follow that arrow's slow progression around the circular room until it hits him in the back it's a really nice moment yeah, it's, it's it's have you figured it out? Like, do you know how this mechanic works? Yeah. You know, it's your final exam, your final question. Like, can you think about what the implications of being able to be on this 2D plane um, in a 3D world? Which is, you know, super, super cool. Yep. Um, and then the the end of this this plot thing, like, which I think uh, at the end we, you know, get this big twist, which is, like, I think half okay. Yeah. Like, it. so the idea, you know, the whole idea that Z- L- uh, Hilda wants this tr- the Triforce because 
this is a world without Link. Like this is this is this is Hyrule without a Triforce. This is Hyrule without Link. Yeah. This is what happens without specifically that the their their Triforce. They decided you know their sages rather than breaking up the Triforce to hide it, they decided to destroy it. And they had a Triforce yeah. and they got rid of it. And because of that, over the six generations or whatever since. Uh, you know, the place is falling apart. It's just shitty, you know? Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that idea. Like that is a cool idea and it, it shows, you know, the value of this thing really well, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's kind of makes her an interesting character that like, she's willing to make this kind of sacrifice for her people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, she's willing it's, to kind of become a villain in order to save her kingdom. Yeah. Even though her kingdom is shitty and full of only monsters and some thieves. And at the expense of another kingdom that's doing relatively fine <laughs> yeah it's it, what's it's the you know we're we're coming to you know to take your water for our you know like she's she's trying to make the hard choices i'm not saying it's like it's wonderful or great you hilda sympathizer it's just it's just slightly more sophisticated than i expect from yeah from nintendo yeah i agree you know as a motivation yeah and uh and that in that last moment you know she's uh zelda is trying to sort of confirm her and comfort her and she kind of has a like moment with Zelda where Zelda's kind of commiserating you know heavy hangs the head that wears the crown kind of thing mm -hmm. but um, you know she rejects it and says no I still I have to stand for my people I don't care who gets in the way we have to take your Triforce even if you're a nice person and then pops you know then in through the window pops Ravio which was unexpected yeah well, just because, and this is the part that I think is less good. Yeah. Um, is that <laughs> as a twist? Ra yeah, Ravio is their version of Link, which, of course, like at this point, they're going to have a version of Link, and it had to have been like it's Chekhov's Ravio. Like it had to be Ravio because he's the only person who's unaccounted for. And he's also the only person who wears a mask slash hood through the entire game. Yeah. So, so it has to be him. And the idea that like he's too cowardly, so he helped you. You run into. Um, you know, if he's trying to help you, like, what's up with these predatory mercantile tactics? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what you know, what is up with you taking uh, my stuff away when I died? Like, that I couldn't get over that narrative dissonance. Uh, yeah. Um, with that, like, it was just like, okay, you know, I get, I buy yeah. that he's a coward. No, he's he a, he's a, um, he's like a top-down economics. You know, he wants to help you help yourself. He's not going to give you a yeah. handout. So. It's the evil randiverse. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it is. It is the you know the the. Link shrugged. Yeah, <laughs> in uh, in low rule. So, uh, but we find out, of course, that he is sort of dark Link or low rule Link, and um, he convinces Hilda that you know, even though their world is going to go to shit, they're going to give their Trice Force back to you, and you go back with uh, with Lady Zelda to Hyrule, where naturally, because you've reassembled the Triforce and we all know the lore, um, you get one wish. And uh, that wish apparently is to restore the Triforce of Low Rule, and everyone lives happily ever after. Credits roll. You have really nothing else to wish for. Yeah. Like your your world is still in good shape. Like in Link to the Past, you restore your world. Um, in this version, like what what do you just wish for money? <laughs> you know, <laughs> can you seal up all those gross? Yeah. Seal up all those gross cracks that are all over our world right now. Yeah. So I don't. So I don't like. Yeah. So I don't have to. So I have to see the poor part of town. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I don't accidentally go into garbage world. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, there's nothing else. There's no other choice you could have made. Yeah. So it's like it's like uh, yeah. Dragon Ball Z. It's like of course you're gonna use the Dragon Ball to bring back all your friends that died. Like there's nothing else that you're gonna wish do for right more now. wishes, guys. Duh. Like <laughs> I wish for more Triforces. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's essentially yeah, everyone what he gets did, the Triforce. So. Get the um, and of course, Wars. after the credits, we see that final moment, just like Link to the Past, where Link is in the woods, placing the Master Sword back on its pedestal and walking away for the cycle to begin anew, etc. Um, I was pretty satisfied with the ending. I had the same kind of dissonance about as you did with Ravio because he was like this goofy character, and yet then he has this very significant role to play in the ending. But yeah. Um, I was so satisfied with this and it took me exactly 15 hours to beat, which was such a sweet spot for me. This was the perfect size and so many smart decisions went into the, the building of this game. Yeah. I, we've been kind of making fun of the plot, but I, it, it was still a better attempt. I think better execution maybe than a lot of the games had had mm-hmm. so far, at least with my limited experience, uh, but it was the gameplay that was so good. It was constantly fun. Mm. I was like, never like, oh, this is boring. I can't believe I have to go all the way over here. I can't believe I have to go and like, even just like, I need a little bit more money right now. I'm going to go get more money. Even that was fine. Like I was never not enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's really the thing that I came away from it thinking was like, uh, it's really endlessly inventive, like figuring out the, each dungeon has a really unique concept that is satisfying and different than the ones in the past. Like there's not a lot of overlap there. Um, so just kind of figuring out and that when we, I say dungeon, that also extends to all these little thief rooms and little side things like the mines. And then there's that, uh, the weird, uh, enemy rush tower mm-hmm. with the incongruous oh, yeah, character where you can treach- fight treacherous tower. Yeah. Treacherous tower. Yeah. Like all of these little concepts, like it feels like each area has a central kind of thesis, um, from a gameplay perspective that reminds me of like Nintendo when it's at its best, which like is tends to be, I feel like in these days in Mario games, where like, you know, like the galaxy games or like a uh, Mario 3d world where like, okay, this is just an inventive concept yeah. and it's fun to explore. And it's, if you don't like the weather, wait a second, it changes, you know? Um, and this is that applied to a Zelda game, which made me really happy. Yeah. Which they haven't um, done in what seems like a very, very long time. And it's also just yeah. an incredibly polished game. It runs beautifully. There's all sorts of little concessions to usability, like we talked about with things like the map and even little things like the drag and dropping that you can do to uh, select items and and assign Mm -hmm. them to keys. Like everything about this game was done as like you, you know, a ton of care went into it. And the people making this game wanted you to have a fun time playing it without feeling any frustration at things that weren't worth being frustrated about. Yeah. So. I'm super glad we got a chance to talk about this game for the show, and I am really thankful, Gary, for coming to for, to you for coming on the show and chatting with us about it. Ever since I listened to your episode about Link to the Past, I knew I wanted to do this game for our show, and I wanted to do it with you if you could make it. So I'm really, really glad you wasted so many hours of your evening with us. <laughs> no, it's 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 quite all right. It's I mean, I'll, I'll, my cat will send you a bill. Like he's <laughs> that's the only thing that's the uncredited the only guest host, the cat. Yeah, yeah, is that he's he's. His d- dinner is mildly delayed, but he will live. Oh, poor boy. Um, yeah. No, I'm happy to do it. I, I have, we talked about this just in the margins and extra material um, on our shows, but, uh, you know, I really like this game and I like the opportunity to kind of do a, to cheat on Cole <laughs> for a second <laughs> and do like a watch out for fireball style examination of this game without actually having to do it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, of course, watch out for fireballs is one place where people can find you. But uh, where can people find more Gary Butterfield on the Internet? Um, if you go to duckfeed.tv, there are the rest of my podcast and then there are kind of blogs and, and a store where I do some music stuff. <laughs> and then if you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at, at Gary Buh, G-A-R-Y-B-U-H. 
And uh, for a long time, it was just angry Gamergate tweets. And now for mental <laughs> health, I've stopped doing that. Congratulations. So it is, I, yeah, I'm trying you. to move past yeah. that too. Yeah. Thank you. It was hard. I, I, I still got, I still get really mad about it from time to time, but uh, I trying to spend less of my time just being angry. Um, so now it is, it is goofier. Mm-hmm. You guys shows so. are also pretty active on Facebook. And of course you oh, yeah. guys have a Patreon and uh, uh, I know I am a, uh, I am a contributor and f- you guys do a lot of great stuff for your Patreon subscribers. So if you like uh, what they're doing over at duckfeed.tv, make sure to support them there. Um, I've been your host, Reagan Kelly. Of course you can follow me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Ray Gank, I guess. And um, uh, of course, you can follow our show uh, at www.theshortgame.net and also on Twitter at underscore short game. Nate, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NateSTL. And for us, the best way to support the show is to uh, review us on iTunes or to subscribe there. That always helps more than you might think. So if you aren't already subscribing through iTunes or reviewing us there, I know iTunes is a terrible podcast app. I know you use Overcast or whatever else it is, Instacast, Downcast, some other cast. Go review us in the podcast app. It helps us out. Or you know what? T- tell a friend. Yeah, that's another hey, way to go. go. Yeah, if you don't like yeah. iTunes, tell your friends. Say, hey, asshole, listen to the short game. Yeah. <laughs> and then apologize. And then hopefully yeah. they will. Yeah. Or, so. you know, grab their phone and subscribe them to the short game without their <laughs> yeah. knowledge or consent. And uh, and then tell them about it afterwards. Yeah, a little B&E. A little, like, breaking and entertaining podcast. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, There's really exciting things coming up for us in our upcoming episodes. Thanks for sticking with us on this really extended long episode of The Short Game. And uh, enjoy your evening. 